This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 93. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the strategy, people, process, and technology aspects of change. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world with their digital transformation journeys. And I'm here with my co-host, Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show as always. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We've got a great show for you today, our usual technology agnostic deep dive into digital transformations. This is episode 93. As I mentioned, we're going to start off the conversation with some hot topics. Um, those hot topics include Disney and the metaverse. Uh, I love hearing some good use cases of how the metaverse is evolving and being used in different ways. So that should be a great conversation about Disney and the metaverse. We'll talk about the future of work and digital transformation. I know the future of work is a hot, trendy sort of topic lately in recent years. So that'll be a great conversation. And then we'll talk about the rise of the AI or artificial intelligence software developer. And then we'll get into artificial intelligence versus deep learning. And continuing with that AI theme that we're going to touch on in our hot topics, we're actually going to have a segment later in the show. The second segment will feature our guest, which is Liren Hasen from a company uh, called Aperio, Apario. And he's going to be on the show talking about artificial intelligence in supply chain management and how artificial intelligence can be used to optimize supply chains. And uh, in fact, we're going to get a lot deeper or broader, not just about supply chain management, but talking about AI in general. We'll get to some basic fundamental uh, understanding of what AI is and how it relates to machine learning and how they're different, as well as some examples and use cases of how AI is being used, mainly in supply chain management, but in other functions and industries and businesses as well. So be sure to stay tuned for that second segment. And then the third segment later in the show will be a replay of a keynote that I gave at a recent Stratosphere conference, which is the ROI of digital transformation. So we're going to talk about the quantitative side and business value side of digital transformation, which is unfortunately an area that is often underlooked uh, as it relates to digital transformations. But uh, before we get to our guest, uh, just one other thing, or before we get to our hot topics, I should say. Uh, just one other thing to note, uh, we have new episodes of this show every Wednesday, so be sure to check us out on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. New episodes every Wednesday. Please uh, subscribe to the show wherever you listen or watch, and leave us a review, too, if you don't mind. If you find this of value, we'd love to hear about it. And if you have any good feedback for us, we'd love to hear that, too. So uh, what are some of these hot topics you have in mind for us here today, Kyler? Yeah, well, let's start with the most wonderful place on earth. So obviously, Disney and the metaverse, they seem like a, a pretty natural fit when we talk about things like overall entertainment and experience. But one thing I found in kind of researching their strategy 
behind the metaverse because they actually are one of the first very large global companies to hire an actual executive that is in charge of the metaverse um, and what they'll they'll be doing as far as growing their business there. But there's one piece of that that I find really interesting that I kind of wanted to get your feedback on, and that has to do with blockchains and NFTs. So basically what we look at with Disney is they want to centralize their metaverse area as opposed to kind of the decentralized main theme of what is the metaverse, that freedom from centralized control or any one authority. That's a, you know, a fundamental definition of what the metaverse or says to be. Um, but in Disney's case, they really want to control their own digital environments, such as a virtual theme park, for example. They've done something interesting when it comes to NFTs and kind of testing this revenue model in the metaverse. And it comes from what they call their golden moments. And that's a series of NFTs that celebrates some of their most beloved characters and moments from movies. So unlike, you know, the the huge range of traditional collectibles, you know, the old Mickey Mouses, all of the princesses, those types of different tangible items in retail, they actually have a smart contract that functionally can be built into an NTF and they take a 6% fee every time that they are used or resold among fans and collectibles. So really kind of honing in on that digital marketplace. So I thought that was a really interesting kind of test series and really something we can talk about that's tangible and real and really happening in the metaverse that might be an, an interesting piece to kind of look at as far as future revenue models for global businesses or, you know, even smaller businesses in selling NTFs or understanding how that integrates. So is that something that you feel like will be kind of mainstream in going into the late 2020s um, and even 2030s when it comes to strategies? It could be. And that's a fascinating uh, use case of of NFTs. I I wasn't expecting you to go there with when you mentioned uh, Disney and, and the metaverse. Uh, but it makes total sense. And I think for a company like Disney that uh, people over the years have been fairly fanatic about, you know, and so I, I think if you can buy a piece of that or, or buy a digital asset, if you will, that's unique to them and, uh, you know, a, a Disney authentic sort of uh, uh, asset, I think that could be um, super um, popular. I can see how people would, would want that, especially once they get comfortable with the metaverse. I think the key, though, is you know, do, does Disney have enough customers at this point to, to make that worth it? But but I think it's good that they're pushing into it and maybe they'll be an early adopter and maybe they'll prove that there is money to be made, um, you know, via NFTs and other aspects of the metaverse. Yeah, and NFTs are so interesting. That's why I wanted to kind of share this specific because obviously we can all kind of go into how the metaverse will be actually consumed and experienced within the Disney model, right? We have movies, we have, you know, virtual rides, those types of different things that you could experience using AR, VR. But this is an actual revenue stream that they're establishing within that. Um, And I think it's really interesting for a lot of different entertainment models, such as autographs or music or those different um, pieces of that we've kind of seen move into more of an an AI driven metaverse. So definitely something to uh, keep an eye on and a shift to really some exciting uses of technology and a new revenue stream. 
Yeah, absolutely. It seems like the entertainment industry is ripe for that. So I think uh, they're definitely the right industry and maybe that's what it's going to take to bring it to the to the masses is for a company like Disney to crack the code on on the metaverse and NFTs in particular. Absolutely. I, you know, just as a parent of, of young Disney consumers, I'm a little nervous that soon I'm going to get like a charge on my, you know, my Apple iTunes for, you know, a thousand dollars of aerial pictures. So hopefully they have some very strong um, parental guidelines around that. <laughs> I would imagine so, but that's a, that's a, that's a valid concern. For it's, a, it's a real, it's a real thing, right? Our reality. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the future of work, specifically in digital transformation. So this is actually an opinion article that came from CIO Magazine um, based off of some research that they've done in surveying specifically executives, so CXOs, if you will, involved in transformation. And they came up with three key shifts that will really dictate the design of future work within transformation programs. So I wanted to share these three and get your feedback to see if you agree, if there's anything you might change about that. So the one, the first one is the rise of human-centered design and in employee experience. So this opinion article argues that employees are the new customers and leading CXOs understand the connection between an employee experience and um, customer-centric business practices. Uh, so these leaders essentially will be able to improve sentiment, satisfaction, and drive revenue growth internally and externally. So that's the first shift that needs to happen for effective digital transformations. And then two, they argue um, reshaping of the workforce and then leadership. Reinventing work has major implementations um, uh, or influence. Implementations? Yeah, right. I made up a new word. Implementations combined? Is that what that is? (laughs) You made another new word. I did. I did. You know, really an innovator, the the language innovator of my, my time, people call me. (laughs) What's funny Um, is I kind of know what you mean, even though I don't think that's a real word. It sort of makes sense. Yeah. So we'll call significance because obviously that's, that I'm (laughs) struggling um, with. Um, So reinventing work has a major influence on how people do work and what they need to be successful in the workplace. So this shift is going to be operating in new digital first environments that require new skills, mindsets, teams, and managers. So focusing on how do you become a digital savvy business and making sure that your leadership are actually change agents of that transition in your culture. And then three, which I think you're really going to like, is connected design. So ecosystems that will revolutionize the future of the organization and operating model. So these, this is going to be that connectivity or that interoperability between systems that allow them to have external capabilities, scale, and innovate. Uh, and those are going to lead to strategic growth, business optimization, optimization, community impact, and then highly scalable value creation. So those are the three kind of places in which they feel as though this, these authors and um, these researchers that these new CXOs, CIOs, CDOs, those, those um, executives in charge of technology are going to need to focus on to achieve a successful digital transformation. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Obviously, being an expert in the field, I'm curious to see what you think. Well, I think the interconnected nature of the whole equation that you just talked about or the different um, pieces that you talked about is is super important and compelling. 
and certainly in particular, the part about employee experience aligning with customer experience and vice versa, and, and not necessarily treating those as two separate goals and objectives or two separate priorities, but knowing that they are very much interrelated. And I think the more organizations can think about their end state and what it is they're trying to become, the sort of value they're trying to create, I think the more, I think you would see a lot more successful digital transformations in the space and a lot less failures if more organizations took that sort of mindset and approach to defining their digital transformation. Yeah, absolutely. That connectivity between employee satisfaction and how it really does trickle down to customer satisfaction are, are definitely related from a data perspective um, in this research. So that's that's a, a great piece that hopefully those those new leaders or um, leaders of transformation will continue to kind of absorb in their overall strategy and um, approach. Right, right. Um, so the next thing I want to talk about is the rise of the AI native software developer. And I think this is this is really interesting to me because it kind of went through what is the journey of AI and how has it become so mainstream so quickly? Uh, so just to share some stats around it, uh, a 2020 study found that eight in 10 executives said they had implemented some sort of AI-driven automation. Um, and then another 16% said they plan to do so within three years. So really, we've seen in the last decade, artificial intelligence really kind of move into a mainstream work stream um, for a lot of organizations. And they compare this to what happened in the late 90s or the early 2000s with the adoption curve of the internet. So if you, you know, take a, a trip back in time, those early companies, you were either kind of a, a dot-com or you weren't. And if you wanted to be involved in future growth, you needed to rapidly embrace this huge digital and industrial transformation that means connectivity, customer information, exchanging of data, uh, and that new kind of interactive digital economy. And that's very similar to what AI is going through as a, a journey. And when it comes to those native software developers or those actual applications that are really AI-driven and focused and even specialized in some case, uh, it's really interesting to look at. It's the same sort of evolution with the internet when we began, began kind of replicating offline processes in those types of environments and new ways of, of thinking or operating. Uh, that peer-to-peer -peer connectivity is almost a use case for AI and that expanding, rapidly grown area of developers and engineers kind of based on what technology can deliver, what is the value add for AI and how does that um, interact with existing or new technologies. Um, and they gave an example, which I always feel like in these situations, it's it's nice to hear kind of an actual use case um, in their research so you can kind of get an idea of what that really looks like. So there's a kind of a generation of developers building new contract review capabilities and tax auditing software. Um, and they no longer think about kind of the workflow as like search driven or data gathering as it's kind of always been. It needs to be have more of a mindset as they approach what is kind of the next step for these softwares and actually being able to not only take data points, but absorb them, change behaviors of the technology, or at least, you know, flash or pop an alert type of thing. Uh, so it 
it pushed those red flags and those alerts to reviewers when they're triggered and learning from the different contracts it sees in that auditing process. So taking a very kind of automate or a very uh, manual time-consuming human process and absorbing it to actually match a certain industry has is an example of kind of those native software applications. So I, I know this is something that we kind of talk about as one-off niches that we see in the marketplace. Do you think this is something that will be consumed in the overall ERP offerings of the future? Or is that something that bigger software vendors will continue to capitalize and build capabilities within their bigger systems? It's a good question and actually one that I plan to ask our, our first guest on the show today um, after this segment, uh, when we have Liren from Aporia on the show, I want to ask him that question. But I think, you know, right now, I think um, ERP vendors are saying that they're starting to build some of those capabilities into their software, but we haven't seen a huge, uh, we haven't seen a, a large volume of use cases for that for AI and um, machine learning and, and some of these different technologies, I think on a real limited basis, but I think the problem that big ERP and enterprise wide software providers have is that they're, they can't do it all. You know, they can't be strong in everything. And right now, AI, machine learning, some of these emerging technologies, that's just not their strength. They're, they're, you know, they're trying to stabilize their core inventory management and financial reporting sorts of capabilities as they, continue their migration to the cloud. Um, but I think, you know, as you look to the future, perhaps 10 or 20 years from now, I, I could see the gray, the lines definitely graying and blurring. And I think the big software vendors will probably start to acquire some of these AI uh, providers or, you know, bring on more developers for sure, but, but perhaps just acquire flat out acquire uh, some of the AI um, service providers or, or software providers. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely an interesting capability that seems to be a, a requirement of some businesses that might not be an offering within their current legacy systems. So having that opportunity to have a specialized system or software or application to help them leverage AI is definitely uh, an interesting movement. And we'll see if that's kind of a, an industry or a niche that's here to stay, or if that's just a a bridge to having a more complete ERP system by those larger vendors. So definitely an interesting movement. Um, but I love the innovation just in that space of thinking through, okay, now I have the data. Now I have the structure. How do I really actually automate that next step to making decisions or alerting kind of our human users? So um, yeah. definitely really interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. And taking it a level deeper um, with our, our last hot topic here is we talk about AI versus deep learning. Um, and so I kind of wanted to talk about the difference between these two. And, and I got to tell you, I'm the first to say that AI is not taking over the world and robots will not be running um, you know, the entire planet. But deep learning, I don't know, I'm, my conspiracy theorist inside me is kind of nervous about it. So I'm interested to hear what you say too. Um, so first let's define them. Artificial intelligence can is really the opposite of human intelligence, right? It's, um, it's a machine based made from data. So the AI is really only as good as, as the data you put in it. And um, the term artificial intelligence 
intelligence refers to machines doing the level of thinking that humans can do at a very low level. Um, so automations, they can't do a lot of strategic different pieces unless they have that element of machine learning in there too. Um, so let's talk about deep learning. Um, and deep learning is a form of artificial intelligence that's based on um, neuron-based networks. So we've kind of talked about how a lot of AI models sometimes look at the human brain, especially how they think and, and that, that almost biomechanics. And so a lot of this is native capabilities of what the human brain can actually do and function. And so the, an example of this would be processing layers of data and high-level insights and, in essence, making it more sophisticated than just a basic AI platform and machine learning. So there's, there's some bullet points that I pulled out of to, like, make this a bit more clear. So AI attempts to mimic human intelligence and behavior. Um, within a broader subject of AI, um, machine learning is a technique that helps computers learn and train on models, on results that are from larger data sets, right? With both AI and machine learning is where deep learning lives. Stay with me here. And this, this technique is essentially more complex version of machine learning that use neural networks throughout the system. So it's a subset of machine learning which in turn is a subset of AI. It's mimicking human intuition and detecting threats more effectively while reducing human error. So think of kind of the next level of what AI could be. Again, I'm a little scared in talking about it, but it's going to actually make decisions. So kind of more on the autonomous system um, level as opposed to just basic AI. So I, one, wanted to see if you're terrified, or two, wanted to see if this is kind of that, that next evolution of where you see the AI industry and systems moving towards. Well, what are the neurosystems, though? That, I'm not tracking that fully. When I think neurosystems, I think of like the human body. Is that what you're talking about, or are you talking about? Like well, I think it's mimicking the human brain model, and then neurosystems would be like integrations. So basically, oh. it's looking at more complex, like I have you know, a, a, a human capital management system, and then I have a supply chain system, and then I have a really complex integration through the through them. So they're actually taking it, like moving your left arm and your right arm and making decisions to catch a ball, as opposed mm -hmm. to just them moving at the same time. Does that make sense? I see. Yeah. Well, that is semi-terrifying. I'll I definitely agree with <laughs> that. But, but that could be, that could be the, maybe that's the bridging of the gap between what you started off by saying, which is artificial intelligence is sort of the opposite of human intelligence. It almost sounds like it's it's trying to capture the best of both worlds, maybe. Is that a fair summary? I would say so. I think my assessment of this, just being in our, our digital transformation industry, is we are trying to do too much too fast, right? We, we still don't really have a lot of businesses, don't have, you know, the infrastructure, the data, the data integrity strategies, um, those types of things for AI platforms. So I, I think it's cool as a concept, but functionally, I'm not sure that we are even close to kind of breaking down how that all works, again, through that connectivity. Um, but something that could be used in a specific industry that maybe is extremely data heavy, like finance or, you know, using to be able to alert those red flags, but make changes um, 
And I kind of see it as, say you have an AI system looking through any fraud in a banking system and they flag this fraud that doesn't match like a specific address or it looks, you know, funky from those data points. And then they actually go through pulling the security system from a certain store to not only take it from it's flagging the fraud, right? But now it's actually going through connecting data around what is the cause of the fraud type of thing. So it's kind of that next step. I just don't, I don't know. And you would know better than I, that we're really there to, we haven't quite mastered that fundamental approach to artificial intelligence yet and how that's activated in an enterprise environment. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And and again, that's uh, part of what I'm hoping we can get into with our with our guest, because uh, you may think I know more than you about AI, but if I do, it's not by much, but, which is why we want to have a guest on here that knows a lot about AI. Um, but it all sounds really interesting. I mean, it, it makes you wonder and it opens up a lot of possibilities of where that technology could take us uh, for better or for worse, you know, in the coming years and decades. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, without further ado, let's definitely get to this really exciting and honestly technical conversation. Um, And hopefully we can learn a lot about what that means as far as how these hot topics line up for actual fundamental use. Yeah, absolutely. And those are, those are great hot topics, all, all four of them, but those last two obviously are very much related to uh, our guest, our first, our next guest on the show, um, who is uh, Liren Hasen, who's the CEO and co-founder <clears throat> Excuse me. He's the CEO and co-founder of a software company called Aporia, which is a software that um, it's an artificial intelligence software company. And I'll let him explain better uh, what it, it is Aporia does. But we're going to bring him onto the show to talk about artificial intelligence in supply chain management. Um, but uh, we're not just talking about supply chain management. We'll talk about AI and other use cases even outside of supply chain management as well. So be sure to stick around for that. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, Um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 93. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Tyler Cheatham, and you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and audio podcast platforms throughout the world. 
I'm excited for our next guest. Um, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence and supply chain. And the reason this is so important and really what, what sort of triggered this conversation or where we're going to start the conversation is, is wanting to talk about and look at retail and supply chains and all the difficulties that organizations and consumers are having right now with a unreliable supply chain, with unreliable supply when the demand exceeds that supply, and really the difficulty that the world seems to be having right now in matching supply with demand. Um, that's a big part of what the challenges are, and a lot of that ties back to supply chain management, and a lot of that ties back to uh, data and potentially artificial intelligence. So what we wanted to do today is talk about uh, artificial intelligence and how it can enable better supply chain management and better uh, operations in general, but really honing in on supply chain management quite a bit here. And to join us in that conversation and to really provide that expertise and depth in this thread, we wanted to have uh, Liren Hasen, who's the CEO and co-founder of Aporia, which is a software artificial intelligence software uh, company. And uh, with that all being said, Aliran, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. And speaking of a global audience, uh, tell us where you're joining us from today. What part of the world are you in? Cool. Yeah. So I'm usually traveling, um, but I'm based in Tel Aviv, Israel. So I'm currently joining from Tel Aviv. Perfect. I appreciate you being here late in the day uh, in uh, Israel here today. Uh, but just to start, maybe tell us a little bit about your background, and then and then I'll ask you a question about Aporia and what Aporia does. But tell us about you. What, who are you? How'd you grow up in this space? Cool. Sounds good. Uh, so I'm Liran, uh, yeah, CEO of Aporia. I've spent about over 20 years in software engineering. So I really started coding when I was 10 years old, um, then worked for a couple of companies as software engineer, um, software architect. And in one of my previous positions, I was leading the architecture of the whole ML infrastructure of a startup company uh, that was later acquired by Microsoft. So really had firsthand experience running machine learning models at scale on large scale of data, as well as for plenty of use cases. Um, I just had to, the first times experiencing what it's like to run these systems in production, all the fun stuff and the challenges that come with it. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what led me to start Aporia. Great. That's a good, interesting upbringing in, in the world. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes and evolutions in, in technology in that time. Um, tell us about Aporia. What does Aporia do? I know I mentioned it's an AI monitoring software. Maybe just help us unpack that a bit and understand more detail uh, what the company does and what the product does. Cool. So as you mentioned, Aporia is an observability platform dedicated for machine learning models. Um, so if you think about it, AI, machine learning, as technology is being adopted across industries, right? Uh, retail is one of them, e-commerce, financials, automotive, it's really becoming everywhere and it affects all of us as consumers as, uh, and as businesses. Now, in a similar way to software, which have bugs and doesn't work sometimes, the same happens for AI. Um, and while there are great solutions to monitor and track traditional software workloads, they do not apply for data and machine learning models. So companies who utilize and leverage machine learning are being left with these areas as huge blind spot, right? Um, in case they might misperform or won't, won't perform as accurate as you might expect. 
So this is exactly where Aporia comes to the picture. Aporia is a SaaS solution that allows companies to visualize. So you can have dashboards and see what models you have in production, what predictions they're making for the business. And also Apoya constantly tracks the data and the models. So when something is starting to go off, when performance is starting to degrade, uh, when there's kind of a drift, whether it's in the model or in the data, so Apoya will alert, or alert you upon that. Um, so instead of being reactive, getting to know about the issues from your customers, or when it's too late and you've already lost some plenty amount of revenues, um, you can get to know about it as soon as it starts to happen. So this is what Aporia is all about in, in, a, in a nutshell. So does Aporia work with certain types of software to pull the data uh, that, it's, that it's analyzing or monitoring? Like how does that work or how does it integrate or tie to other systems you might already have in production? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you know, it's a, it's a very interesting question because um, when looking, especially in large organizations, you will find that different teams are using different technologies to develop their models. Some of them will be legacy, some of them will be new ones. Um, and actually one of the main use cases of Aporia for large organizations is being able to connect to all these different data sources, all, to, all these different types of machine learning models. And making Aporia this one centralized place where you can see all the, the different types of models running in production. So just to summarize the, the answer to your question, um, Aporia is agnostic to the type of model you're running and also from what database it is coming from or is this using. Got it. So if I have disparate systems and or multiple systems running my operations, it could pull from those multiple data sources. Exactly. These models or to monitor the models. Okay. Great. Well, well, I guess to start then, um, just to sort of keep at this high level to start, and then we'll dive into a little bit more detail. Um, but why is artificial intelligence so important, especially in the retail demand planning and, and supply chain management fields in general? Why, why is AI so important or becoming so important? Yeah. So I think AI is becoming very important, uh, not only in this industry, but in general across all industries, as I mentioned before. But specifically, when talking about retail, about demand forecasting, um, the ability to forecast, to have a, great, a good prediction, could mean a lot for the business, right? So retailers live in a, in a market which is constantly changes. You have different market trends, you have holidays, you have COVID that's happening, um, all sort of things that by the end of the day affect the way consumers behave. And therefore, that affects your business. So if you are able to predict properly some market trends, for example, you might adopt your pricing strategy, right? And as a result, you'll get some more revenues. Uh, you might adapt your marketing campaigns and leverage new trends that are upcoming. You might change the way you build stocks in warehouses. Um, the same goes for personalizing our consumer's experience. When we shop online, for example, um, what recommendation do we get for product? As a, we can take Amazon, for example, 35% of their revenues are coming thanks to the recommendations their machine learning models are providing with their end users. So this is, and you know, when you think about it in terms of numbers and US dollar value, we're talking about significant amount of, of, of value for the businesses. So I guess this is why it becomes so important. 
Yeah. So it sounds like there's maybe two layers of importance there. One is the sort of how do you keep the supply chain and in, in the supply in line with demand? So you, as you anticipate demand better, how can you keep supply in line there or, or aligned with that demand? But then there's also the more opportunistic side of it, it sounds like, which is how do we sell more to uh, based on machine learning models or just knowing our customers or having that customer data to be able to anticipate what their needs might be. Is that a fair summary of what you just said? Yeah, exactly. Well, there are a few more aspects like chatbots and virtual assistants, so you can provide with better customer support experience to your users. Also shipping. Um, you know, we, we got used in the last few years that we can order something and get it by tomorrow, the latest. It's not obvious. Um, and a lot of it is just thanks to the ability to optimize shipping routes, for example. So this is just another example of how AI is really impacting this this sector. Right, right. Especially when there's disruptions all along the way with shipping and, and um, even just freight, you know, once it's uh, once it's off the once freight's off the water, just optimizing how you get it from whatever port it's at to the warehouse and all that, all that stuff. Um, well, good. Well, before I continue with my questions, just to turn to the audience here and look at where people are joining from today, I want to uh, thank everyone for dropping in the chat where you're at today. Uh, we have uh, Malcolm on LinkedIn from the UK. We have Ryan on YouTube from Denver. Uh, Kyler's joining from Colorado, uh, Grand Junction in the US. Sam from Spain. We have Dallas from Utah, Leo from Ohio, Pakistan, uh, Canada, UK, Toronto, Germany, Ivory Coast, New York, uh, rest in Virginia, Germany, Atlanta, a lot of, lot of different places people are joining from today. Uh, Enrique from Chile just joined as well. So thank you everyone for being here today. And like I said, if you have questions uh, for Liren and I, please uh, drop those in the chat and we'll, we'll pull those, pull those up. Um, Here's a, here's a question that I think for me would, would perhaps help just understand what you just described, Liren. Um, this is from Pasha over on, on YouTube. And Pasha asks, this is not AI, just the old school alert system. Uh, what are you precisely using for AI to discover for your user before a specialist finds it? How does it become a leading indicator? Does that question make sense to you? Or is that something we can unpack a bit maybe to, to, to explain how AI... It, perhaps is not an old school alert system and, and how it's different than an old school alert system? Sure. Um, so, well, first, yes, you can, you can definitely use some old school algorithms and heuristics to predict demand, for example, right? Uh, you don't have to use machine learning. I think machine learning as technology could bring a lot of value in some of the use cases. And by the way, my personal recommendation will be evaluate all the different technologies and alternatives that you have and go with the best one that suits your, your needs. Um, and AI is not the, tool, the right tool for everything. So choosing the right tool is important. Um, what's the difference between AI, machine learning, and kind of old school heuristics? So the main difference is that in heuristics, we have a data scientist or a software engineer who take a look on the data, they learn the data, and based on their familiarity with the data, probably with some domain expertise as well, they will be creating an algorithm, a set of rules that can be followed in order to predict what will be the demand, for example, in a specific country for a specific item. Now, while that might work just great for certain use cases, if you are Walmart and you have 
millions of items. And for each one of them, you have different um, order history, right? For, for different countries. And you want to achieve good performance and predicting the demand for each one of these particular items, then it becomes very, very complex, right? Because we're talking about enormous amounts of data. It's not something a human can just go one by one or take a look at this data and say, okay, this heuristic works well. Um, I think this is when the, the true power of AI comes to the picture. So essentially what you're doing with machine learning, you take historical data, uh, for example, the, let's say um, the order, the purchase history from the past two years for each item. And then you don't specify yourself what is the logic and what is the heuristic, but you rather use machine learning algorithms that they learn, they mimic the way we learn. So they learn the behavior of the data. And that's what is called model training. By the end of this process, you'll have a model, which is usually kind of the, the brain, you can say, um, or a new function that is able to get historical data and based on that predict what will be the demand for a specific item. Mm. Um, so I think this is where AI shines and where it becomes very, very powerful. It can actually achieve things that beforehand was never possible to do with traditional software engineering, or it was just very, very difficult or very expensive. Right. And so it's moving beyond just alerting that there's an outage or, or a, a um, product is out of stock. It's, it's anticipating when that product might be out of stock if you weren't to order more. It's more of the using past history to not just alert, but to predict the future. Is that a layman's term summary that helps? Yep. Good. Now, I know we're talking quite a bit about retail supply chain management. That's sort of where we started uh, the conversation. Uh, but actually, this is a, a good question here from from Dan over on LinkedIn. It's similar to a question I had for you as well, which is, do you have AI software to recommend for manufacturing? And maybe more specifically, does your product and AI in general um, support manufacturing operations as well? All the planning of raw materials and production and staffing, all that stuff. Is that Can AI help with those sorts of challenges and problems as well? Okay, so our solution. Okay, so our solution is a, it does cover manufacturing use cases, but it is important to to be clear about that. Uh, our solution is not for developing. It's not a kind of it. It doesn't create the models for you. Um, so as for AI software for manufacturing, there are plenty of these. Um, I'll be happy, you know, uh, to take it offline and to share a few specific recommendations. Got it. Okay. But in general, AI can be used to, or there's AI solutions um, that can help with manufacturing and uh, production planning, resource planning, that sort of thing as well. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, here's a question. You, you could tell me if this is a question that's relevant or one you, you can answer. I, I know I cannot answer this question, but maybe you can, Alaren. And this is from Hamid over on LinkedIn. And Hamid asks, is there specific mathematical models that prove their capabilities in supply chain and shipping as it, as it relates to AI? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. Um, so it's a good question of what does it mean prove their capabilities, right? Uh, so I don't wanna say something that will be incorrect, 
what I, what I can say is that we are work actively working with retail customers um, and customers that are working on on and utilizing machine learning algorithms for supply chain as well as for shipping. Are there specific algorithms? There are a bunch of them. Um, and we also find that sometimes different data science teams and different organizations for the very same use case might use different algorithms. Um, if to be more specific, I can share that we do see um, a lot of recommender systems. We do see a lot of use of decision trees, XGBoost, um, stuff like that. We do see that a lot. Okay. We're here with Liren Hasen from Aportia Software talking about artificial intelligence in supply chain management. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 93. You can find new episodes every Wednesday. And we're here having a conversation with Liren Hasen from Aporia Software about artificial intelligence and supply chain management. And then uh, here's a question from, from Kyler on LinkedIn. Um, as an organization, how do you know if you need or, or could benefit from AI software? So if you're an organization, I'd say with over 100 people, you probably can benefit from AI software. Uh, the question is, when does it make sense to do that? And in what part of the business? And the reason I'm saying it is because you can use it in marketing, right? So you can predict your DLTV of your customers and you can adopt your marketing campaigns accordingly. Um, you can utilize it for customer success. Like you can do it for a lot of things and a lot of parts in the business. Um, how do you prioritize that? How do you find the first use cases? So in order to, to achieve success with an AI project, especially the first ones, it's crucial to have enough data. High quality data is crucial for success of these projects. Um, so therefore I'd say, find out in what use cases you have a lot of relevant data. It might be your, your CRM, right? You might have a lot of metadata about your potential customers, about your leads. And then you can utilize AI, for example, to prioritize these leads. So this will be one example. Um, so finding this first use case, I think it's really important in order to achieve success. And based on that, you can then replicate it and find more use cases within the organization. So is, is AI in general, is AI like a, a muscle that an organization needs to develop? So in other words, if you, you identify one problem, like you just defined a, a few examples there, 
you define one specific problem, you solve it with AI, you build the models, you refine it. Um, is that sort of like a competency you need to build as an organization to, to learn and, and figure out how to use AI and use the data better? Yeah, so what happens a lot of times is that each organization has different needs for AI. Why? Because their data is different, the business KPIs are different. Uh, and that's why a lot of times just trying to utilize or to buy a generic solution from the market um, doesn't work well. And that's where you'll see a lot of organizations that are just building in-house data science and machine learning practices. So how do you do that? Um, you need to hire data scientists as well as ML engineers and to build a team that will be responsible for creating and leading these initiatives. Right, right. So just like you might have a, a data management team, a master data management function within an organization, you may also start to build out an AI function as well. You know, people that can, you know, work with that data, build the models, refine the models, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Because why, why, why do we gather data? You know, a lot of companies in the past decade have collected tons of data, uh, but, and we, we are paying a lot of that, right? For the storage, for the compute. So why do we do that? We do that in order to gain value out of these data, to mine these data and gain some value. How do you get value? You do some BI, you do analytics, and you use machine learning. These are the free, I call it the value layer of the data stack. Um, so yes. Okay. And that actually leads me to another sort of fundamental question. This is me as a person that does not understand artificial intelligence or data science very well yet. But uh, that question is, what, what is the difference between artificial intelligence and machine learning? And how are they different and how are they similar? Or how are they related? Well, if it's, uh, if it's written with Python code, it's probably machine learning. Uh, if it's on a PowerPoint deck, it will be AI. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so AI is more of a concept about how can we mimic certain human behaviors like learning, for example, learning and identifying patterns um, and implement it using technology, using software, using hardware. This is AI, this is artificial intelligence. Machine learning is part of AI in a way, it's kind of an, impl an implementation for AI. And it's a set of algorithms for recommendation, for classification, for prediction on the future, that essentially the way they work is they work on, usually on top of a lot of existing data. They learn this data, um, try to find some patterns within it or anomalies, um, and then you can utilize this software for other use cases. So I, I hope it makes sense, the difference between AI and machine learning. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like they're different but they're very much related and it yeah in in that machine learning then is really what is processing and anticipate processing data and anticipating what the data might do in the future is that a fair summary or how would you maybe correct that statement i say it's pretty accurate yeah you have a lot of data you want to predict how something will behave in the future yes that will definitely be one use case um Another use case will be, well, I have a lot of pictures of cats and dogs. I want to classify which picture is a cat, which picture is a dog. It might sound silly, 
but we all use it when we use Google Photos and we search for either within our personal photos. Um, and if you haven't tried it, I, I highly recommend you to try because it's really cool and fun just to search for your photos for you know your cat or your dog. And it's pretty amazing the way that Google is able to do that. Um, so these yeah. kind of things, yeah. Okay. So on my phone, when I get these... I get these random recommendations of pictures of my wife or pictures of my dog. And it's sort of a collage or, or a series of pictures. That's machine learning that's figured out what's in the pictures that's, rec, you know, kind of recommending that to me to, to view. Is that fair? Yeah. So it's, a, it's an interesting example because actually there is more than one model behind what you just described. There will be at least one model to classify what object is in the picture, a dog, a cat, a person, it, there might be another model to identify who that person is. Is it your wife? Is it Eric? Is it your friend? And then based on that, there might be another model for recommending which photos should be collaged together and would be interesting for you to see. Interesting. Okay. Right. Because if, yeah. if Google will just take a bunch of screenshots that they took from your phone and will create a collage out of that, probably you won't be that interested in that. Right. So I, I think the takeaway here is that AI and machine learning are probably affecting our lives more than we realize. You've, you've talked about Google, you've talked about photo recommendations, um, Amazon's recommendations on, on purchases. There's a lot of interesting use cases in how machine learning has sort of permeated our lives in ways we may not even recognize. Um, so given that AI and machine learning is becoming more prominent and more relevant in the world, um, why do retailers have trouble using machine learning models to accurately predict demand? So you think about today and how there's still stock shortages throughout the world, supply and demand are still not in sync uh, ever since COVID per, for the most part, or, or in many cases. Why is that? Why are retailers having so much trouble using machine learning models to figure out you know, how to match supply and demand? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So... Um, and, and we saw a couple of examples, right, with Macy's and Target that they had some significant changes in their stocks. And we also noticed that some changes in the revenues um, that might be correlated to that. So first, the, the short answer is predicting the future is hard. Okay, like uh, it might sound like machine learning is a magic, but it's not. Uh, and it's right. not a silver bullet for everything. So predicting the future in general is a difficult task. And when you think about it, predicting demand. So what is affecting demand, right? So when we take machine learning models and we ask them, we train them to predict the demand of specific items, we do it based on historical data. Now, historical ch data changes due to plenty of reasons. Um, I like to split it into three layers that are affecting the data that gets through the model. The first one will be the data pipeline that is constantly changing, new version updates, different engineers working on that, sometimes from even different teams and different, even different companies. Then you have the application layer. So is it the mobile application that is getting changed on the web application? And the third layer is the real world, which is constantly changing with seasonalities um, and stuff like that. Uh, you know, maybe just a new tweet or a new post on Instagram make made a new shirt very, very popular. So it's very, very difficult to anticipate. And, and when you think about it, there are so many variables. 
that you cannot take all of them into account, even when you train machine learning model. So this is one of the main challenge. You have to deal with some sort of uh, limited amount of data that you have on the real world. So this is one limitation. And number two, when we talk about demand forecasting specifically, feedback loop usually takes a lot of times. A lot of time. So if beforehand we spoke about Amazon and the recommendation. So for them, it's pretty easy to track, you know, we recommended Eric to buy, I don't know, um, let's say a, a new laptop or something. Maybe a few hours later, you bought the laptop, they get feedback that the recommendation was good, right? Right. With demand forecasting though, it might take a few months and even quarters until you get these feedback. So we can think about it as a student in school that instead of getting a feedback on a weekly basis, they get it only after a couple of months. So the learning rate is becomes, becomes uh, worse. So this is two challenges in my opinion, um, and actually three challenges. So the first one is the limit data that they have. The second is the delayed feedback. And the third one is the constant changing world that they live in. Um, and therefore, as a matter of fact, if something is changing now affecting the demand as we speak, we'll probably get to know about it only in three, four months, which is already too late. Right. Right. And, and there's actually a question that builds on what you were just saying. This is from Sam Graham over on LinkedIn. And he Sam asks, when a company's sales are affected by seasonality, it can take several years for a demand pattern to emerge. Is it possible to speed up that process? So it's a very interesting question. That's exactly what Aporia is doing, actually. Um, so the obvious result is, you know, seeing the your sales results and say, oh, shit, we lost some money. Uh, so the, our, our demand forecasting wasn't correct. Sure. But trends are not happening in a single time, right? It, it's a trend. It's, it takes some time. So, for example, what Aporia is doing, it's tracking the data that gets into the model as well as the predictions, and it's tracking their statistical behavior. So, as a trend is starting to form, you can get alerted upon that. You can then take a deeper dive into, wait, let's try to understand what is the new trend. How is it affecting our demand? And then you can accommodate that and adjust your demand or the way you sell or your prices. So you can either optimize your margins or your revenues. Right. Okay. Makes, makes total sense. Um, okay. So, um, are there, are there things, so let me come back to something you mentioned. You talked about the different layers of AI and one of the, the layers you talked about were, was data. Do you find that with, with Aporia's customers um, that there are data integrity issues that sort of undermine their ability to fully take advantage of machine learning in AI? Or, or is that part of the, the journey is to not just deploy AI machine, machine learning, but also to make sure your data is clean and accurate? So I think it's not something that is unique to our customers. I think it's, you, you see it everywhere. Like, really, it's very, very challenging and very difficult to keep data clean. Um, and, and why the reason is very simple. It's just being affected by so many factors, so many people. Uh, so 
yeah, we do see a lot of data integrity issues. Um, and that's why keeping track on the data, identifying this kind of issues and data integrity changes, um, it's important to identify them as soon as they start happening. Right. Yeah, it's a great, great point. And in, in sort of building on this data thread and theme here, this is from Ryan over on LinkedIn. And he asks, in the sales and marketing space, can AI fill in the blanks that occur due to the loss of customer data that has resulted from the large tech companies implementing more stringent privacy rules? And maybe just to broaden that question a little bit, even not just the tech companies, but uh, in Europe with GDRP and just general privacy concerns that, that um, organizations and governments and people throughout the world have, is that affecting AI machine learning's ability to have reliable data to build models on in, in some functional areas? So it's, it very depends on the specific use case. Um, when we are talking about ads and targeting, like trying to target ads for a specific audience, um, then the answer is yes. I think all the changes in GDPR, um, the new regulations, CCPA in California. So a lot of these things are affecting the data that is available from the very beginning. Um, to do all these recommenders, to classify the users. So that creates a new challenge for all these companies and how can they build models on top of this missing data? Um, I, I do want to relate to the question, can AI fill in the blanks? Well, we can try using AI to fill in the blanks. And, and here it's important to emphasize again that it's not bulletproof. Um, it might do good work for some of the data points, it might do some poor work, poor, poor work for the other data points. So it's really of the que a question of what is satisfactory for the business um, to work with. So I think it really, like, I'll be happy to do deep dive into the specific business case and understand exactly what makes sense and what not. Right. Now, how about um, this is actually a really interesting question. I'm glad uh, Hamid over on LinkedIn asked this because I, I probably wouldn't have thought to ask you this. Um, but do you think that combining both Internet of Things with AI and supply chain would be the better way to provide more exactitude? And maybe just maybe I'll broaden that question a little bit and just say, how does Internet of Things tie into this? Or, or can Internet of Things be an enabler of AI and, and ML? Yeah, so Internet of Things is super interesting here because Internet of Things, when you think about it, you have suddenly millions or billions of new sensors that are creating more data, right? It could be temperature, it could be weight, it could be amount of items on the shelf. So you, we, as society, we have plenty of more data to work with. Um, so in that sense, IoT is definitely a huge enabler, in my opinion, to using AI because it allows us to have all these data. And again, more data allow us to create usually better models um, so this is for that. Running machine learning models on IoT devices, it's kind of a, another angle of it. For example, in cars, right? Um, how do you run machine learning models in cars, uh, whether it's for autonomous driving, whether it's, you can actually find today already in the US some cars when you drive, um, they can automatically identify signs on the, on the road. Have you, have you ever had this experience? Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. Yeah, so, so this is something really cool. Um, and running a machine learning model on an edge device, an IoT, in a way I can treat a car as an IoT, 
it's different than running it in the cloud. It comes with some different challenges from an engineering perspective. Uh, but the short answer is yes, I, there's definitely um, great connection between IoT and machine learning. It's just a, it's a matter, though, of where, where and how that data is processed, though. Is that what you're saying? Whether you process it centrally in the cloud or whether it's being processed at the local device or, or um, um, what did you call it? The, at the, like at the edge device. device. Yeah, the edge device. Yeah. Okay. Super interesting. We're here with Liren Hasen from Aportia Software talking about artificial intelligence in supply chain management. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Give me the If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 93. You can find new episodes every Wednesday. And we're here having a conversation with Liren Hasen from Aporia Software about artificial intelligence and supply chain management. When you when we think about AI machine learning, um, do we do customers that you work with typically consider AI as part of an overall digital transformation, whether it's for a retailer or any other organization, or do they go through their digitization process and then deploy AI machine learning, or, or is it sort of a mix of both? I would say it's a mix of, of both. Um, some of them are just doing it as part of the digital transformation process. Right? So one of the things they want to do is they have you, like tons of forms from their, their customers. Um, so then they digitize all this information, but now they have plenty of data they, they can work with. So it's great that they digitized all these data, but now they can actually leverage AI and gain a lot of new value that was just impossible before the, when this data uh, wasn't digitalized. So we definitely see that connected one with the other. Okay. Makes, makes sense. Um, and do you, do you think that some of the big tech providers, the enterprise technology providers like SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, some of those uh, big ERP enterprise technology providers, do they, they say they have machine learning and AI in their products. And we've seen some signs that maybe there is some AI and machine learning in it, although I, I still question whether or not they really have those capabilities. How would you compare what Aporia does to what a big enterprise-wide technology says they already have baked within their, their technology? So I think, well, it's usually complement. Well, we work a lot with in-house data science and machine learning teams. Mm -hmm. So when thinking about it, these teams are highly focused about building new models, improving the existing machine learning models, right? To gain better value for the business. Um, they're 
core business is not to monitor and track and build a monitoring system for these for these models. So this is where Apoya comes to place. We really help them to realize the value that they are creating. Uh, we are not the ones building the models. So I think this is actually um, great complementary uh, to what they're building. Got it. Okay. So it's not duplicate. It's not um, either or. It's it's really building on what what they have. In, yeah, in and actually, and and even more than that. So. Um, as we discussed before, there are plenty of use cases, right? Like even within one customers of ours, they usually will would have between five to hundreds of different models. So one of the nice things about the Apore system is the fact that it is highly customizable. So the way it works is usually they will start working with the out-of-the-box defaults of the system, but then each data scientist will customize it to their specific use case and needs. So for example, they can create different business dashboards for demand forecasting versus um, recommender system. Okay, got it. Okay. Um, here's another great question. And, and I think uh, what I like about a lot of these questions the audience is asking is they're, they're A, asking questions that I'm not thinking of, B, they're asking questions that are tying together multiple technologies. And uh, this is from Deepak in India over on YouTube. And Deepak asks, um, he's asking about blockchain and AI. Um, how do blockchain and artificial intelligence work together, if at all? Are they, are they related? Do they complement each other? Are they totally unrelated? How, how do you address the blockchain and AI topic? So I think that blockchain is very new technology in a way. Um, actually much newer than AI because when looking at AI, what you'll find is that the first algorithms of neural networks, for example, um, were there from the 1960s. So technology itself from algorithms is not that new as blockchain. Blockchain is much newer. Um, and I think that AI is already being implemented and being used for plenty of use cases. And blockchain is a bit behind in, in that sense. I know there are plenty of companies who try to leverage that. Um, and in, in the financial industries, uh, I am familiar with some companies who use blockchain already. At least from my perspective, and again, I have just my angle of reality, um, so take it with a grain of salt. We didn't see a lot of combination between blockchain and AI as for now. Got it. Okay. All right. That makes makes sense. Um, here's a general logistical question. I should have asked you this earlier. Uh, this is from Dan on LinkedIn. But what is the website uh, for your company? And, and so uh, Dan's asking, he didn't catch your name or the, the company name. Uh, so it's Liran Hasen, uh, L-I-R-A-N. And the last name is Hasen, H-A-S-O-N. And the company is spelled Aporia, A-P-O-R-I-A. But what is the uh, website address if, if the audience wants to learn more about Aporia? Sure. So it's aporia.com, uh, A-P-O-R-I-A.com. Got it. Okay. Aporia.com. And by the way, feel free to ping me um, over LinkedIn. I'll, I'm happy to, to take any questions later. Perfect. Here's a question from um, Halray over on LinkedIn. And Halray asks, how would you leverage the predictive power of AI for intermittent demand? in project-based environments. Have you seen that sort of a, a use case at Aporia? 
So um, I'm trying to understand what does that mean in terms of demand uh, in a project-based environment. Maybe just, um, and I'm not sure if this is the intent of the question, but maybe I'll, I'll reframe it as if, uh, if, if I run third stage consulting, I, I run third stage consulting, we have 50 or 60 client projects happening in any given time. We're tracking progress, we're tracking data from these projects. So I don't know if it's uh, intermittent or if it's more maybe diversity of data, uh, different projects with different variables affecting them. Um, have you seen it? Have you seen AI used in, in sort of a project management sort of environment where you're anticipating potential bottlenecks or resource constraints, uh, other things that might affect a project? Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, so I'll tackle this from two angles. One is, as you as your the example you gave Eric from the use case, right? There are plenty of use cases like predicting congestion, predicting. Um, the timeline of the project, doing, using, utilizing all these kind of things to predict unexpectances or important items in the project. That would be one use case, which is interesting, but there are others as well. Uh, the other angle of the question is kind of from te technical perspective, how to tackle that um, as projects are different one from the other. Um, so that brings an interesting question. Do you take the data from all projects or do you split them and build a machine learning model for each one of them? Mm. It highly depends on how much data you have. Um, if you have a lot of data, my recommendation will actually be to use the same algorithm, but build a separate model, train a different model for each project. And then the model will be tailor-made for this specific project, meaning that the predictions will be more accurate. Um, so that will be my recommendation. Okay. So it sounds like, I mean, there's just so many different ways AI machine learning can be used in so many different use cases. I mean, we've, we've already discussed several of them. Um, I guess outside the world of retail and supply chain management, which is largely what we've been talking about here today, are there other really interesting or, or common or groundbreaking sorts of use cases or examples of how you're seeing your customers use uh, Porio in, in, in the machine learning and AI world? Specifically in the retail industry or more in general? Or just, just more general, like you, just the world in general, if you kind of look at all the companies using your product or, or use cases or examples that you've seen, are there any other just interesting examples or uses of AI and ML that you've seen? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think the most common one, well, there are two different questions. What are the most common one and what are the most interesting ones? Sure. Um, most interesting ones, I'll just drop one because it's super interesting. Um, it's called Project Dolly. Uh, not sure if you saw that, but this is a really cool project by OpenAI. Um, it allows you to describe a situation, a scenario, a state, a picture, and it will draw a picture based on what you describe. Wow. So, yeah, so you can say, for example, um, I don't know, um, a guy sitting on a computer drinking soda um, in the 90s, 50s, or in the, in the, I don't know, something like that, in Van Gogh style. And it will draw that picture for you. So that's really interesting. It's mind blowing in my opinion, super, super interesting also from technical aspects. Hmm. Um, so this is from the interesting angle. 
for the common use cases. So this is not the common use case for the businesses. But what we see, we see as common, I'll just mention a few of them, is churn prediction. You want to know which of your clients are going to churn. So you can act upon that ahead of time and make sure they, they are not churning. Uh, so churn prediction is one of them. Hmm. Fraud detection, um, credit risk, and there are plenty of others, but I think uh, this is a good summary. Yeah, I could see financial services, um, that whole industry potentially being transformed by and dependent on AI and machine learning to help minimize their risk and their losses and that sort of thing. Um, very interesting. And then I, I would imagine companies like Netflix or tel telecom companies, wireless providers, people that have a high amount of churn, I imagine that use case would be really powerful to them if you could sort of anticipate what type of customer is, is likely to churn and, and, you know, trying to counter that that trend where possible, I can see that being very valuable to organizations like that. Oh yeah, churn prediction, um, pricing, like how do you provide the right price, right? On one hand, you don't want to leave money on the table. On the other hand, you want to offer an attractive price so they will become a customer. So this would definitely be another use case. What deals to offer them so they will, you know, they will stay as customers. So also once you've, you've identified your existing customers as potential for churn, how you treat them is also something you can utilize machine learning for. Mm, right. That's interesting. Uh, so Kyler over on LinkedIn asked the question, how do you monitor and maintain these models to ensure that they're functioning properly? I assume, you know, when you first set up these models, they're not perfect and nor will they ever be perfect, but how do you, how do you, how does that process work? Like how do you monitor and maintain? And, and I, I suppose that's what your product does. That's what Aporia does, but maybe you could help, help us understand how maybe not getting into the, the tech details of how it works, obviously, but just more conceptually, how do we, how do we maintain these models? Sure. So first, what you just said is very, very correct. Uh, once you release model to production, it will never be 100% accurate. There is no such a thing. Um, and then from that moment, as time goes by, it will just, the performance will degrade. Uh, why? Because the world is changing, right? And the model tr was trained usually on a specific snapshot of reality, for example, the last five years. Um, so that's just by the core nature of machine learning models. So then the question is, how do you track, how do you monitor them? Um, so first, it's important to have clear visibility to what decisions they're making for the business. And then also to measure the performance of these models. Now, this gets me to the question of how exactly do you monitor? Because in many of these use cases, the feedback is coming just later, right? Like we, we discussed it months in insurance companies, for example, it might come even years later. So what do you do until then? You, you can't be in the dark. Um, so this is a classic use case for Aporia. In a high level, the way it works is like that. If you think about it, uh, when we train, when we built the model, it, it has learned the snapshot of reality from the five years. Let's take it as an example. Uh, before releasing it to production, we measured the success and we realized that the model was pretty much successful for the, predicting the past five years historically. So that means we have here an implicit assumption that as long as reality behaves in a similar way to the past five years, the model is predicting pretty well. 
But as things are starting to change, for example, uh, maybe we're starting to see different population, maybe we're starting to see activity in different hours, um, all these kind of things. So the data the model is receiving is starting to change from statistical behavior and also the same way the predictions, the decisions that the model is making are starting to change over time and also compared to training. That's when our system will alert and tell you, listen, something is changing. You should take a look into that. Um, and if you think about it, when something is changing, doesn't necessarily mean it's changing for the bad, but it just makes it more of a flip of a coin. Now, you didn't invest a lot of money and you run a machine learning model for flipping a coin. So that's when maybe it will make sense even either to retrain your model, maybe fix the problem, maybe try an alternative heuristic instead in the meantime. So this is kind of how it works. Okay. Yeah, that makes makes total sense. Um, what about a um, question from Ronnie over on, on YouTube. Ronnie asks, what open source AI technology would you recommend learning? And thank you for this great contribution. So what, first, what, for, what would you say there? Okay, so first, thanks for the question. Um, if you, so it depends on what you're trying to learn. If you, you want to learn machine learning um, and become a machine learning practitioner, there is a great course uh, over Coursera by Andrew, uh, Andrew Ng. It's uh, spelled Andrew N-G. Um, so he has a great course. Um, in Coursera, if you'll just search for his name, you'll find it. It really teaches uh, machine learning from the beginning. I think it's sponsored by Stanford. I highly recommend following it. Okay. So Andrew Ng, Andrew Ng and the last name is spelled N-G, right? Yes. Just the, the, the letters N and G. Okay. Got it. So I guess just to bring this all full circle, um, and I appreciate all this great uh, feedback you've provided, Liren, and, and Obviously, the, the audience has had great questions as well. Um, but just to sort of wrap it and tie it all together here, um, how should organizations get started on their AI journey? Because I think a lot of clients we work with, you know, they're trying to just get the basics in place. You know, they're trying to get their basic enterprise technology in, in place. They're trying to clean up their data. They're trying to consolidate data and systems. Um, and so a lot of times they, they get overwhelmed by the amount of tech and organizational and operational change. But how, how do you recommend that if, if an organization really wants to embrace AI, machine learning, how do they, what, what are some of the first steps you, you typically recommend? Yeah, so I'm very practical and I'm a very structured person, so that's my approach. Um, but my recommendation will be identifying one, only single use case where creating a change could mean a lot for the business. That's one. Number two, that you have enough data for this project and this use case. And then by having, once you've identified this use case, it's important to identify, to write down exactly what is considered as success. What are the KPIs and where should they reach in order to say this was a successful project. And once you have that, that's the time to hire a data scientist and ML engineers let them run on this project. Uh, and as, as they work on it, it's really, in my opinion, it's, it's crucial to be aligned all the time on the business KPIs. Uh, we do see in, in plenty of cases where 
people are building machine learning models, but they're not necessarily tied enough to the business needs. Um, so by tracking and monitoring how well this model is performing, um, I think this is crucial for getting a, a success. That's great advice, you know, for really uh, not just AI, but a lot of technology initiatives is sort of pick a pilot or a, a targeted area that you can figure out how you could use that technology, learn from it, build the competency in-house, and then you start to apply it to other use cases and other needs. And then eventually you start to become more um, versed in the technology and the ways it can help the business. And, and uh, I could see that sort of cascading or, or percolating through the organization as you get some successes under your belt. Yeah, and actually to add one more thing here, which is important to understand about machine learning. So in software engineering, usually you can have a good estimation of time of development and you'll, you know, you'll have your delivery by the end of the time. With machine learning, it's important to have in mind that we're, every project is a research project. There is a question of whether the mission can be done in the first place, right? So even if we said this is the KPI we want to reach, we might not be able to do it. So Managing research is, def is different than managing development. So while working on the project, it's important to have milestones and to have some deadlines and say, okay, do we still think it's a good idea? Do we still believe we can make a significant progress in this time frame, or maybe we should evaluate another opportunity um, to use machine learning? Right, right. That's, that's great advice. All right, thanks very much, Laren. That was a great conversation. Appreciate you being on the show here today. A lot of good stuff, a lot of things I didn't know about artificial intelligence and machine learning and supply chain management and a lot of other stuff. So much so that we'll debrief on some of those things uh, here with Kyler. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 93. We just had Laren Hasten on the show talking about artificial intelligence and supply chain management. What were some of your takeaways, Kyler? Did you learn as much as I did? Was there was this all uh, old news to you or did you learn some stuff there? Oh, no, absolutely not. I, I mean, I learned a ton. And I mean, what an impressive conversation to, to just learn about, you know, kind of the ins and outs of, of how artificial intelligence can operate within an organization. And Something that I kind of took away from it was was what you kind of always talk about is like the fundamental need for looking through an evaluation of any new system. And that really all kind of seems to come back to data integrity when it comes to whether you're trying to do an artificial intelligence 
software system or um, application, or if you're trying to do, um, you know, a huge global ERP implementation, it seems to always rely on how good is the data and where is the data and is it clean and ready to go um, in order to kind of support those new systems. Is that is that something that you feel like is just fundamentally the first thing that organizations should really think about when going through any sort of new technology implementation? Yeah, with or without artificial intelligence and machine learning, by the way, you, you want to have clean data, even if you're just trying to get accurate reports and um, better business intelligence and predictive analytics and all that stuff. Uh, that's all contingent on having good and accurate and clean data. And so many organizations struggle with this, partly because, you know, partly because they, the data was never clean to begin with, but in other cases, it's because they don't have the right data governance processes in place, you know, to make sure that they're keeping a handle or, or keeping the integrity of their data. So it's a, it's a big problem for organizations, but I imagine it's going to become a bigger problem that becomes even more exposed as organizations start to use more machine learning and AI types of solutions. Absolutely. And, and from that conversation, a true weakness, you know, an almost competitive advantage will be to those that can utilize their information to create a sophisticated artificial intelligence infrastructure, which again, as, as you guys kind of talked about, is really going to be the backbone of effective supply chain management and just the fact of utilizing that. So I don't know if you'll be able to answer this question or if you felt like you got an, a different answer. So when we look at kind of the, the root cause of all of this supply chain disruption, which of course is the COVID-19 pandemic um, sprinkled in with a variety of other kind of geopolitical or geoeconomic issues. So when you are looking at that supply chain forecasting and you're kind of putting in data pre-2020, do you even do you even utilize that data anymore? Or is it now just we only have two years of actually data to look at what the forecasting will be for demand? Like I can only imagine that must be really hard for the data science community to really predict because going back to like a 2018, that seems so far-fetched now um, in that factor. So how do you kind of get those, I guess, uncertainties? How do you work around those or embrace them, I guess? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And and I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know this for certain, but my instincts and data points that I've seen tell me that it's highly likely that these data sets are very different, you know, that, that I don't know that, you know, I don't know, you would necessarily get rid of that data because there are other factors that historically might affect uh, demand and supply. Um, things like, you know, weather related, like hurricanes, for example, those are always going to be, they, those always have been and will continue to be issues that could disrupt supply chains, depending on what part of the world you're in. Um, so there's things like weather patterns that certainly I think would still be relevant, but it's, but on the more the consumer behavior side of things, why, you know, why, what triggers people to buy stuff or not? Um, I think that's going to be new. You know, this is sort of relying on more recent data. And the other thing, as you were asking that question, the other thing I thought about as well, God forbid, I, I, I shouldn't even say this out loud, but God forbid there's another pandemic and the government their governments throughout the world decide to lock things down. Do we have a better handle on how to manage that now if, if based on historic data and based on what happened and didn't happen uh, in 2020 until now? 
Um, I don't know, but so maybe it helps in that way. But uh, I hope that's a moot, moot point and totally irrelevant. I really do. I hope we never have to deal with that again. But um, but it, those are a couple of things that come to mind there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I I guess maybe that's um, a reason to kind of utilize or even network with these AI specific softwares is because there could be opportunities that could be mined in there that you might not have evaluated or considered before, very similar to working with an independent consultancy when going through kind of your technology portfolio. There just could be things in there that you haven't seen or realized could be opportunities um, within your data just because, you know, it's, it's something that you've, you've never considered before. Um, so for working through that, um, I, I assume would be a, a great opportunity to just have that connection. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, it does make you wonder too, though, on the flip side of what you asked, you know, is there data that organizations were never using in the past that are data, there's data sources out there that they could be leveraging, but they're not. And if they did, does that give you any sort of future prediction or, or, you know, learning capability for, from machine learning to be able to predict the future more accurately? So I guess it goes both ways. There might be some data sets that are totally irrelevant from pre-COVID, but there might be others that we were never looking at or never really utilizing the way we could that perhaps we could be using going forward. Yeah, and and of integrity sharing process too. You know, we've kind of talked about industries kind of coming together and sharing specific insights to kind of rehabilitate the industry in general. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, we look at that through kind of shared shipping locations and warehousing and those types of of different pieces. So I think that in working with data management experts in general, there are so many other places that businesses could potentially get at least insightful information to optimize their system and approaches that we typically would have been a hard boundary or off limits um, pre-pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Absolutely. Well, this, I mean, this is such an interesting conversation and I would be so interested for you to do a follow-up on kind of that human component of AI that you guys kind of, kind of touched on, um, but you went into a lot more functional stuff, which is so important because we, we learn a lot, but I, I wonder kind of what that would look like on the organizational change side that they've seen when they do implement in an organization, you know, do they, because they're AI specific, do they experience that fear and that resistance that we often see when you even mention automation or artificial intelligence? That would be something to, I'd love to dig into um, a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. To see if like his customers are grappling with that challenge. Yeah. And even, even the executive team, like we, we talk a lot about the explainability of AI and that is really an issue. And it kind of takes me back to what we've seen as, as far as policy evolution around data security. So for example, when we have an executive like Mark Zuckerberg subpoenaed by the U S Congress and saying like, well, can you read all of my text messages? And that's kind of like what it is like to explain to an executive, especially one that might not be as savvy in the digital scope. And it's like, no, that's not at all what Facebook or, you know, any sort of um, tech company does. But being able to explain AI and the opportunities to an executive team, I would be really interested in, in how that works or if there's an industry-specific tactic that he's taken and scaled 
um, and then trickling down through the organization. How do you kind of combat that overall, okay, this is what we're doing. We have executive alignment, but maybe that middle management tier still isn't clear about what their future looks like with this emerging technology and enterprise technology. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, some good follow-up questions we can ask the the next time he's on the show for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I did um, link in the description and then also in the chat, um, all of the LinkedIn information and the company URL um, as well. So if you want to check it out and get some more information, um, I highly suggest connecting with not only that thought leadership, but learning more about this really specialized marketplace that's only um, growing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that sounds good. Thanks for sharing that link. And uh, thank you again to Liren for being on the show. That was a great conversation. And I think there's a lot we could dive into next time as well. Um, well, thanks for that that debrief. And uh, we're going to shift gears, uh, maybe not tremendously. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a stretch, but going from AI here and some real technical components of digital transformation, we're going to shift gears a bit and go into the ROI of digital transformation. And I, I suppose that's one of the you know, one of the follow-up questions I might have on AI is where where are companies getting the ROI and how many of them are actually seeing ROI from artificial intelligence and machine learning? I think the potential is definitely there, but um, like a lot of technologies, enterprise technologies, ERP systems, HEM systems, CRM, supply chain systems, whatever it is, there's a lot of ROI and business value that organizations leave on the table, which is why so many organizations struggle with their implementations as a result. So we're going to play you a keynote after the break here, we're going to play you a keynote that I gave at a recent Stratosphere conference that is the ROI of digital transformation. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back and play that clip when we return for for transformation ground control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 93. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. And uh, Kyler, we're gonna play a clip from our recent Stratosphere conference uh, about the ROI of digital transformation. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about, first of all, where can we find this keynote and other keynotes that were given at this, this conference? Sure, absolutely. So this is a main keynote from our digital stratosphere, EMEA, which we hosted earlier this year with our Europe, Middle East, and Africa team here at Third Stage. So if you'd like to see our conference, you can definitely check out our website under our um, thought leadership. We have events there. It is free to register and you can get all of the on-demand content 
as soon as you do register. So we'll come right to your inbox and you can check those out. You can also visit um, stratosphere2022.com for all of our other bigger stratospheres with our global teams and partners uh, and see those on demand. We also have a playlist on our YouTube channel. So lots of places to consume this information. Uh, but this is actually one of my favorite keynotes because I, I think it really drills down into how do you make sure that your digital transformation or new technology is actually producing results and value for your organization. Uh, and Eric kind of lays out a, a step program to ensure it's almost like a checklist to make sure that you are um, achieving that um, transformation value. Um, so with that, uh, I moderated this conference and I'm excited to kind of bring it back to our ground control audience. So let's go ahead and, and cut to that clip, Eric. That's such a good question. Just a good segue and lead in into the um, discussion here in the PowerPoint slides is that it, it is a uh, focus on um, ROI and making sure that organizations implement technology, not just for technology's sake, but that are they're focused on the actual ROI. I think that's that's probably first and foremost. And that is really um, why we wanted to talk about that exact topic about maximizing the ROI of digital transformation. So Kyler, if you don't mind just popping that into presentation mode, and then, I, then we can start flipping through, um, flipping through those. And we'll start off with the, the quick introduction here as well. Um, the as far as my background, for those of you that don't know, I, my name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage. Um, spent a lot of time working with organizations throughout the world and with our teams throughout the world, including our team uh, in the EMEA uh, regions there. Um, I've been doing ERP consulting, digital transformation consulting now for about 25 years. I started off at one of the big system integrators and um, continued my career uh, for the first 10 years or so uh, working with uh, different consulting organizations um, after, that, after that large one. And then um, in more recent years have focused on becoming more of a leader in the independent consulting space. So helping clients select and implement different types of technologies. So that's the, a little bit of my background and um, where I started. I actually spent quite a bit of time in my career working within um, Europe and Africa in particular. Um, I've done some work in Middle East as well, but Europe and Africa, I've done quite a bit of work. So looking forward to uh, the questions and, and discussion here with the audience here in the region. So are those slides, are you able to advance the slides, Kyler? Yeah. Do you see it, Eric? No, I, well, I do. I see it just the title slide uh, and it's not in presentation mode. Interesting. Okay. Again, always. It, it just advanced, but it, uh, it's, it's, it's still in the, um, the not in the presentation mode. So if you just hit yeah. the little icon at the bottom right there, it should allow you to pop that into presentation mode. Yeah. Can you see the presentation node at this point? No, just the, the outline of the slides there. Interesting. Um, but I'll keep talking because we can't yeah. see the slide. That's the good news. Right, so right. The, uh, the, Let's the meet third stage, stage at least. <laughs> yep. Yep. So as far as who we are as an organization, we're 100% technology agnostic and we're a consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation journey. So we're um, doing everything from helping clients define what their um, system, what their system is going to be what their overall digital digital strategy is going to be, as well as um, how they're going to manage those projects with uh, PMO, organizational change management, uh, process improvement, and whatnot. So our whole job is really to be that independent technology advisor 
uh, throughout the the implementation in helping uh, clients throughout throughout that whole process. And you know, I'm gonna just um, stop sharing here and just share my whole screen so you can see the presentation mode, so it looks a little bit better here. So just give me a second. Um, sure, here. sounds great. It's you know, it's two a.m. here, folks, in in the United States. So just you know, bear with us, right? How's that go. look, Eric? Actually, yeah, that looks great. That's perfect. Thank you. Um, and then you can also hide that question if you don't mind too. The the question from the opening. Um, cause I don't think I can do that from, as a speaker here. Um, so in terms of, of how we, we help, um, some of the things I mentioned, we do a digital strategy, software evaluation selection, as well as the implementation project quality assurance, um, which can be two different types of roles we play. Um, we're either helping provide milestone based and ongoing quality assurance in more of a background advisory role. And we also provide more hands-on PMO program management types of services, um, to take a more active role in the implementation uh, at the PMO level. So that's those are sort of the two ways that we help clients manage their their project management and governance. And then within that, we also um, help with business process advisement, organizational change, and also implementation readiness. Um, as Kyler mentioned, we also do quite a bit of expert witness work as well, which we hope uh, none of you on the call here will ever have to, to hire us for. Uh, but that is an area where we take a, a lot of our lessons from ERP and digital transformation related lawsuits. And we take lessons from those failures to help make our own implementation services better. And that's a big part of what our, our thought leadership is based on, is on these these different um, uh, lessons from from those projects. Don't worry. We're so working far, out, sorry, we're working out the kinks here. No worries. And I'll, I'll keep chatting. I'll, I'll verbalize the slides in the meantime. Um, and if, if need be, I can share it, uh, Kyler, I can share my whole screen. It would just show everything. So it, let me know if I need to do that. Um, so the the other um, thing that's worth noting is, is sort of answering the question for your organization, which is going to be a different answer than what other organizations might uh, come up with. But the whole idea here is determining what exactly is digital transformation. What does it mean to your organization? For some organizations, they're focused on deploying a single ERP enterprise-wide sort of technology. Others are focused on a more specific solution like a human capital management or CRM, um, warehouse management, whatever the case may be. Um, and in other cases, organizations are focused on more incremental. You know, there's some cases where organizations are focused on that more incremental improvement to their technology, whereas other organizations might be taking more of a broader and holistic um, quantum leap sort of adjustment to their their transformation. So I think that's the first thing is to really understand that there's a lot of technology out there in the marketplace. There's a lot of a lot of technology that you could be deploying, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you should necessarily be deploying all those technologies. So a big part of the, of the start of a successful digital transformation and realizing that ROI is first defining what technology or technologies are going to be the most the most effective. And so that's when you start to learn about all these different technologies like artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, Internet of Things, Industry 4.0, all these different technologies out there. It's really important to just recognize, you know, realistically for us as a business, what is it that we're going to benefit the most from? What's going to deliver the most business value? And let's focus on those technologies uh, rather than taking more of a shotgun or a scattershot approach to deploying different technologies. And so the problem with most digital strategies, as you can see on this slide, is that there's so many organizations that 
fail to reach that third stage of success. And our company is named after that analogy, that third stage uh, analogy, which is a, actually a rocket launch analogy. And when a rocket typically launches, it typically has the first two stage boosters that get the rocket into space. And then the third stage booster is what will ultimately get the rocket up to its ultimate height and speed in orbit. And so the problem with digital transformations, much like rocket launches, is that so many of these transformations don't ever reach that third stage of success in delivering actual business value and ROI that's expected uh, from the organization. So that's that's a big challenge and a big part of what what organizations struggle with. And so when we're talking through this presentation and as we're helping clients uh, that we work with, our whole goal is really focused on help, helping ensure that we reach that third stage of transformation success and that we're able to get past those first two stages where most organizations get stuck or they never really get past uh, those points. So we can move on to the next one, please. There we go. And so another thing to think about as you define your digital transformation strategy in the spirit of defining a digital strategy that's actually going to deliver business value and it's going to help you maximize a bit of the business value is to recognize and understand and articulate what sort of transformation you're really looking for. And, and this is just an example of sort of two different scenarios where you might have a traditional ERP implementation, which, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, um, a lot of organizations were deploying ERP implementations the same way they are today. And that's part of the problem with the industry is that we haven't really evolved our, our learnings and our best practices to how to make these projects more success, successful. And you can see that when we look at different uh, components of um, implementations versus di full digital transformations, you see that you, you might have a different approach or a different deliberate way of handling different dimensions of your transformation. And there's different risk profiles and there's different cost-benefit trade-offs that go along with that. And so when you look at this slide here, the, the sort of the comparison between your traditional ERP or HCM or CRM deployment versus a, a broader, more comprehensive digital transformation, you see a couple things. One is that on the more comprehensive digital transformation side of things, you're generally focusing more on business process improvement, more on actual business value versus just deploying technology for technology's sake. And so a lot of times what happens is, is not that ERP implementations don't deliver business value, but they themselves on their own the technologies do not deliver business value. It's with the process improvements, with the people improvements, um, with the right aligned strategies. And that's where I think that's how those sorts of projects become more successful. And so the key here too, is to recognize that if you're doing a more incremental, call it, let's just call it a more incremental ERP upgrade versus a more complete transformation and a more, more of a, a bigger leap in your technology capabilities, those are two different risk profiles. It's going to take you longer to do the sort of the right side of the screen. There's higher risk. There's ultimately more potential business value, but we have to recognize it's a bigger impact to the organization. And sometimes that change can be harder to manage if we're taking on a more complete uh, transformation uh, sort of approach. And so if we look at the, um, the top challenges that organizations face after they've recently gone through uh, digital transformations. Um, these are the top five things that organizations struggle with. And you see that the number one thing that organizations that have gone through transformations, the number one they the number one thing that they struggle with is organizational change 
and just managing the people side of the of the transformation. So that's the, hands down the number one challenge that organizations face. But in a close second is transformational misalignment with strategic objectives. So when we see organizations that have a digital strategy that doesn't match and doesn't align and support a overall organizational strategy, that's where you start to run into to challenges. And that's where you get diminished business value. That's when you start to run into projects that are over budget and over time and whatnot. Number three is difficulty managing and addressing deficiencies with the system integrator. So in other words, organizations are deferring too much to the system integrators, letting them take too much control of the project without addressing the deficiencies and the gaps of the system integrators. Um, so uh, an analogy I like to use is that it's, it's a lot like an organization wants to build a house, let's just say, and they want to do so by calling in a plumber. And so rather than calling in a general contractor and architect and laying the foundation, all that stuff, and then bringing in the, the contractor, so to speak, organizations are starting straight with a, with a myopic solution, which is a system integrator, which only provides part of the solution and doesn't address the other parts of the transformation. So just making sure that you are able to manage the system integrator rather than the system integrator managing you, and that you're able to fill those gaps and address those deficiencies of the system integrator is a very important success factor. And then finally, the last two things are the clarity of business processes. And so organizations that don't have that clarity of what their business processes are going to be in that future state target operating model, those organizations are going to struggle a lot more with their implementations to deliver value and to finish on time and on budget. And they're more likely to have operational disruptions as well along the way. And then finally, the fifth thing is the, is the data migration. So um, just challenges with data uh, cleansing, data mapping, and, and that sort of thing is a challenge as well. And then I mentioned the word operational disruption a moment ago, and it's worth calling this out because part of the problem that organizations have, there's really, I guess you could call it three different um, major risks with transformations. One is that you're not able to implement it. You're not able to implement on time or on budget. Second is you're not able to deliver the business value an ROI that you expect or should be able to get from the transformation if you had managed it better. And then the, the third thing that's um, sort of falls in between those, those first two things, and it's something the organizations don't think a lot about, is the operational disruption that's caused during a transformation and what is that cost and that risk to the organization. And so it's almost like uh, trying to mitigate your risk or trying to manage the downside risk of negative business benefits. So just to give you an example, if, if you're an organization, you go live with new technology and you can't ship product for two months because the project is such a mess and you can't deploy and, and you're successful, you're, you're not successful in deploying that technology, um, that challenge can lead to something like not being able to ship product. And if you're not able to ship product, chances are that you may lose orders, there's revenue impacts, profit impacts, that sort of thing. So really understanding what that risk of that sort of operational disruption is, is, is important. And what we found over the years of, of doing this research, it's a remarkably uh, steady metric over the years, which is at somewhere between 51 and 54% of organizations that go through digital transformations realize some sort of operational disruption, a material operational disruption. So I'm not just talking about a few hiccups here and there. I'm talking about major operational disruptions like we can't ship product, we can't close the books, we can't run payroll, 
um, something major like that where it, it is a material impact and it, it affects your customers, your employees, or some combination of both. And the, the cost of that, the, the cost of what that operational disruption impact might be is typically exponentially more than the cost of the actual implementation itself, or it can be if the operational disruption is severe enough. And that additional cost that's added to the cost of the actual transformation as a result of that operational disruption can range anywhere from 50% to 300% of what the initial implementation costs were. So I think that's a very uh, important thing to consider as well and to, and to watch. Well, great stuff here from Eric and team about the overall ROI of digital transformation. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back to dive into more tactics. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Eric Kimberling, CEO and founder of Third Stage, talking about the ROI of digital transformation. So Eric, I'm going to hand it back over to you to get back to your keynote. So um, now I just want to shift gears and talk about how, you know, what is it we do about it? So I've talked a little bit about the risks and the challenges um, of transformation, what some of the differences are between a more incremental technology upgrade versus a more material digital transformation. So now it's worth talking about, well, what do we do to ensure that we maximize business value, not only during the implementation, but also post-implementation as well, to make sure we're getting the most value that we possibly can out of this investment in time and money and resources that we've just made in new technology. And it's worth thinking about now, even if you haven't started the project yet, it's worth thinking about. And so what we want to do is share some themes or best practices of what we see that delivers the most business value uh, to our clients. And so the first thing that you can see here is to start with a phase zero um, when you get into the implementation phase. And what we mean by this is a sort of implementation planning, implementation readiness phase of the project. And it sounds intuitive as, as I'm talking about it, but it's important to understand what dynamic most organizations fall into. And that dynamic is most organizations' instincts are to go pick new technology, go evaluate a few options, pick the one or ones that are the best fits for you, and then start designing, building, and deploying stuff. And it sounds basic enough, but the problem there is organizations typically rush too much into the implementation, actual execution mode without having clarity and a vision of what the overall plan is, what a realistic plan is, what the realistic budget is, um, all the planning activities that need to happen to really serve as that foundation or that blueprint for a successful transformation. And again, I'll use that, that home building analogy. Um, when you're building a house or a building, the first thing you do, or one of the first things you do is you 
you design a blueprint. You design a blueprint of how all the pieces are going to fit together, uh, what what the overall design is going to be, what materials are going to go into it, what contractors are going to fill those those roles, all that sort of thing. And so most organizations or most people intuitively understand that you wouldn't build a house without a blueprint. But organizations do it all the time. They go into these transformations without a blueprint and they say, we'll just pick the technology and then our implementation partner or system integrator will provide the competencies for us to um, implement that technology. And again, it's important to think of this as more than just an implementation, a technology implementation, but think of it more as a transformation that involves one piece of it is technology, but there's other pieces related to process improvement, the people side of change, um, the strategy alignment, all that, all that good stuff. And so it's important to think about it in that way. So rather than building a house with running water by calling the plumber first and foremost, which is what a lot of organizations do, is they call a system integrator or a software vendor to come in and help them solve that specific problem. It's important to back up and create a blueprint and a realistic plan and in a way that's technology agnostic as well. So that phase zero is really important. And what that does is it puts you in control of the project, it allows you to have that ownership, that internal buy-in and ownership of the project. And it's also a way to drive internal alignment too. And I, and I saw there was a question that popped up around uh, internal alignment and whether or not that is something that can diminish business value. And that's absolutely true. Um, if, if you don't have internal alignment, you're going to run into delays, you're going to have budget overruns, and you're ultimately not going to get the business value you want. And by the way, uh, perhaps even more importantly, you're going to have higher risk in the project if you don't have that internal alignment and common understanding of what this project means and how it's going to impact your business. And so that phase zero helps in a secondary beneficiary kind of way by reducing the risk of not having that, that alignment, which is a root cause of why so many organizations uh, struggle. And so if we could go to the next slide here, the, the next thing is to, to understand and be deliberate about ensuring that your business drives technology. And so ensuring that there's an internal understanding that this is not just an IT project and that business process improvements should drive new technology rather than the other way around. And you want to make sure that the transformation is closely aligned with measurable strategic goals and business ROI. And so, you know, the reason here this is important is that organizations too often flip that equation. They, they think that they're going to lead with technology and those technology improvements will drive the business improvements. And there's a couple of problems with that. One is first and foremost, there's deficiencies and gaps and weaknesses with any technology you might deploy. Um, so you don't want to assume that your technology is going to solve all your problems. But secondly, technology is becoming more and more flexible as time goes on. And you're able to do more with technology. There's more decisions and more options and more configuration uh, workflow options you, you can have. And so by having a, a clear understanding of the business needs first and letting the technology support that rather than the other way around, you're going to make those technology initiatives a lot more successful in terms of implementing on time on budget, but also risk minimizing the risk of failure in some of the operational disruptions and ultimately maximizing the business value and ROI longer term. And so really yeah. letting your business serve as that blueprint is a key part of this as well. And I think this is a good time to address this question because I think it's really important. Um, so how much time and effort should be dedicated to analyzing 
the broken as is versus the to be in this letting the business drive technology. Eric, can you help us understand that? Yeah. So there's um, there's a, a good amount of time, depending on how broken or or how much you want to improve your business processes. So the more broken they are, the more you're trying to improve them, the longer this exercise will take. So it really does depend on that. Um, it also depends on the scope. You know, how, how much of your business are you re-engineering or how, you know, what functional mm -hmm. business processes are in, in scope. And so you want to make sure you have uh, that understanding of the scope first. Um, but I think the key here is to, I'll kind of address the last part of that question about the difficulty of visualizing 2B processes. A lot of times organizations don't know how to do this. They don't know where to start. They think that they need the technology answered first before they can really define process improvements. And the way I describe process improvement and a good way to think about it in understanding, you know, those, those macro business needs versus the more detailed transactional configuration needs of software is to think about um, if you're familiar with the, um, I don't remember what organization it is that created this nomenclature, but there's, there's five different levels of, of business process definition at, at level one is sort of your really high level end to end macro processes. And you work your way down a, levels of detail and sub processes within those business processes. And then you get down to them to the micro level of transactions and workflows within the technology. And that's the level five. So you have somewhere between level one and level five, level five is very depending on dependent on what technology you deploy. So you need to know how the software works, what the configuration options are, and it's really going to sort of drive a lot of the detailed level five business processes. But if you're talking about level one and two, you know, sort of those higher level processes, you can be defining those in an independent and technology agnostic way that allows you to define and end business processes that is, is relevant regardless of what technology you use. Certainly certain technologies will make those processes more efficient and more effective, but you have a general vision of what those, pro those processes are from a technology agnostic point of view. So if you view it as sort of five layers of business process, levels one and two, and maybe even level three, are going to be things you can do upfront independently of what technologies you do or don't, don't deploy. And then as you get into level four, level five, that's where it becomes more technology dependent. Now, again, certainly some technologies like, for example, artificial intelligence, let's just say that is more likely to have a big material impact on your level one, level two, level three. But I think the key is you still can define business processes in a way that's independent of the technology to really drive those needs and understanding of how you might use something like an artificial intelligence, for example. So I think that's really a, a key way to, to think about that. Absolutely. Well, let's keep walking through these, Eric, and then we can get to some more questions. Be feel free to put your questions in the chat. We can see all of them. Um, some great conversations around um, Industry 5.0 from Albert here. Um, because we, we weren't even ready for 4.0. So we're, we're, <laughs> we're moving okay. into emerging technologies already. Yep. Yep. Good stuff. And then, you know, another lesson learned for maximizing business value is to have realistic expectations. Some of the biggest challenges in a transformation can be traced back to the fact that the organization and the team never had realistic expectations to begin with. And so if you just sort of play that out a little bit in, in understanding in slow motion how this dynamic affects a transformation, what ends up happening typically is organizations will reach out to software vendors and or system integrators. 
those third parties come in and give you sort of that sales spin or that sales message of what they think an implementation might cost in terms of time and money. And typically those proposals or those scenarios are based on overly optimistic assumptions. They assume that you're just going to deploy technology and everything's going to be perfect and everyone's going to be happy. But what they don't account for is the complexity of your business, the impact of your organization, potential people and process issues that always creep up in these projects. And so they come in with these plans that become sort of gospel within organizations and those plans and those budgets that are in the proposals from the system integrators oftentimes end up serving as the foundation for those unrealistic expectations. And so let's just say a vendor comes in and says, we can implement our technology in, in 18 months for say, uh, you know, 10 million is the cost in whatever local currency. And so whatever, which I know is a huge variation depending with all the different currencies we have on the on the phone today, but just as a, an example here, let's just say the proposal is 18 months and 10 million in cost. And in reality, maybe it was never going to be a project that could ever possibly completed in 18 months. It was always going to be more like 24 or 36 months and maybe double that budget. That's the more realistic answer. But the problem is the organization has staked its entire project on this unrealistic and faulty plan and budget. And so what ends up happening is the organization and the team quickly realizes as it gets into the implementation that, oops, we made a mistake. We're going to be way over time and over budget. And typically that's not palatable to most management teams. And so what ends up happening is then organizations start throttling back. They cut scope, they cut activities in the work plan. They try what they can to cut time and money from the implementation. And typically they cut things that shouldn't be cut that are going to actually increase your risk and increase your costs longer term. So that's when you start, organizations start making bad decisions like cutting testing cycles or cutting training and cutting change management from scope. And so it leads to a bunch of bad decisions that then snowball and create ultimately a failure in many cases. And at the very least, it diminishes business value. It, it minimizes the value you can get from the technology that you were trying to deploy, all because you had unrealistic expectations up front. So the key here is to really recognize that dynamic and understand that when you get a proposal from outside third parties, they're trying to sell you software and technology services, there is reason and there's good benefit to being a bit skeptical of those and, and making sure that you have a realistic sort of sanitized view of what the implementation time and cost is going to be. And then another lesson that we have as far as maximizing business values, if you assume that your organization has limited time and resources, meaning that you, it's not infinite. You don't have unlimited time and resources. So there's some limitation on how much time and money you have to do whatever transformation you're trying to do. Then it's, it's important to recognize that since you have limited time and resources, you don't want to overcomplicate the selection process. You want to make sure that you implement really well. And that's a key important point here because a lot of times organizations get so stuck on the evaluation process, either because they don't have the right technology agnostic inputs or they don't understand what their options are or uh, because they get caught up in analysis paralysis, whatever the case may be, a lot of organizations, when they fail, they actually start failing early on before they've ever picked the technology because they spend so much time and money trying to pick the right technology and they could have done it a lot faster and a lot cheaper if they you know, had the right outside help. Um, and shameless plug here, that's what third stage consulting does for its clients is help clients select and implement software faster and cheaper than they would otherwise, just because we have that experience and that agnostic view. And so organizations that, that 
recognize this and recognize that, yes, we need to be thorough in our evaluation. We want to make sure we get the decision right. But with the right outside guidance and the right tool set, if we can do that faster and with more limited resources, then that's going to allow us to put more money and time on the implementation to make sure that part gets right. And, you know, a good way to think about this is for every hour or dollar you spend on the evaluation and selection process, that's a one less hour or dollar that you have to spend on the actual implementation itself. And so, again, it's a, it's a balancing act. You want to be thorough. You want to get the right answer. You don't want to make the wrong decision. You don't want to rush the decision, but you also don't want to overcomplicate it. So recognizing that you need to invest heavily in the implementation and really focus on getting that right. Um, even if it even if it were to mean you have imperfect imperfect technology, um, but you implement it really well, that's usually a better bet than having the perfect technology that took you a long time to figure out and vet, but you don't implement as well. I'd always take that that first scenario um, over the second. And, and granted, there's there's a middle ground or there's a gray area in between, but hopefully that illustrates the point of the importance of of implementation. Absolutely, Eric. And, and let's answer this great question here from, from Sam Graham, who's um, one of our great community members, is when businesses are running several projects in parallel, how easy or realistic is it to measure ROI? I think this is a really interesting and important question. Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks, Sam. And, and when businesses are running um, several projects in parallel, um, or even if they aren't, so I mean, let's just broaden the question here a little bit and say, you know, even just for, let's just assume this is your only major project, um, how, how realistic is it to measure? Um, first of all, I'd say it's important. It's extremely important to measure ROI, um, whether you have one project or whether you have multiple. Um, but I think the key is that you do want to measure it or else you, you're not going to achieve it. You're not going to achieve what you don't measure. And so that's why, you know, starting up front in the digital strategy and that phase zero that we talked about, that implementation readiness, one of the most important things you can do in that phase is define what that business case is, what the benefits realization plan is, how people are going to achieve those business benefits, and using that not only to justify the project, but more importantly, using that business case as a mechanism to provide project governance into the project. So in other words, we can use our business case as a decision-making tool if we've done it right. It's a decision-making tool to help ensure that we make the right decisions during the project from a project governance perspective. So that extra module that someone might suggest that we add on to the scope is that does that additional module deliver on our help us deliver on our business case? Or does that piece of customization that we know we shouldn't do because we know that it's going to increase our cost and our risk if we do the customization how does that tie back to our business case and ROI? So the ROI analysis really becomes a mechanism for making good decisions during the implementation. Certainly justifying the project is another benefit of, of having a good business case and ROI analysis. But third, and perhaps even most importantly, that same mechanism allows you to have a good framework for managing benefits post go live. So after technology is deployed, what can you do to improve and optimize those business benefits, that's a key part of why that business case is so important and so beneficial in that way. Well, great stuff here from Eric and team about the overall ROI of digital transformation. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back to dive into more tactics. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. 
And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Eric Kimberling, CEO and founder of Third Stage, talking about the ROI of digital transformation. So Eric, I'm going to hand it back over to you to get back to your keynote. And then another challenge or thing to recognize when you're trying to maximize your ROI for any sort of transformation is to recognize that there are no silver bullets. So there's no easy answer. There's no perfect decision you can make that minimizes all of your risk. Um, there's always going to be a trade-off, you know, in most decisions you make for a transformation, even something as fundamental as do we deploy a single enterprise-wide technology to answer all of our problems, or do we deploy more of a best-of-breed approach, multiple technologies, multiple solutions, point solutions throughout the organization that perhaps better fit those functional needs of different parts of the business, but now it's created a risk because we have to integrate those systems. And there's always risk with integration. There's cost, there's data issues, that sort of thing. So um, that's an example of where neither answer is perfect. And we could probably have a, a full-on debate here with the audience and with, with Kyler and I uh, arguing the merits of all these different decisions you have to make during a transformation, like single enterprise-wide technology versus best of breed. That's a great example. We could sit here all day and argue both sides of that, and there's no right or wrong answer. It's more a matter of understanding what the trade-offs are what the value is of each of those options and ensuring that you pick a path on all these different decisions that best align with and fit your needs. And so really recognizing um, that is, is really important. It's if you feel like you're getting an answer or you're making a decision that has completely eliminated your risk, then you're probably not thinking about the risk or recognizing the risk appropriately because every, every decision is going to have risk. You're just trading one risk for another. And so it may be that one scenario is going to deliver less risk, and that's fine, but you just want to recognize what those trade-offs are. So no silver bullets, there's no easy answers, things like uh, pre-configured solutions and best practices, that's all sales jargon, it's industry jargon that we all created in this industry to help sell more software. And so, and when I say we, I don't mean third stage, because third stage does not sell software, but as an industry, the technology can industry is designed to sell software. So you really have to take some of those silver bullets, that sales messaging, take it with a grain of salt and just recognize that there are risks with whatever path you might go down. 
And then the next uh, dynamic here that we want to be aware of and mindful of is ensuring that you own your, your project and recognize this is your project. You don't want to be rushed into prematurely deploying when you're not ready. You don't want to start just spinning your wheels, designing and building technology without a clear understanding of what the roadmap is, what the blueprint is, what the foundation is, all that stuff that we've talked about. And it's, it really gets back to ownership and just making sure you recognize you are, you're the organization that's going to have to live with whatever solution or solutions get deployed. And so you should be the one to, to run that. Now, granted, yes, you, you probably need outside help. You probably need technology consultants and other third parties that can help you, but just recognize that they have a specific role as a sort of a contractor in that home building analogy. And you need to be the one to help create sort of that internal ownership of that general contractor role that general contractor and architect role. And that's a role we often help our clients fill is, is that general architecture and, and blueprint sort of role, helping clients define that so that they can ultimately be in control of the project and set their own tempo and um, you know manage conflicting priorities and making sure that you, you've dedicated the time and the, the plan that's gonna best suit you as an organization. So that ownership is really important. The more, more an organization has ownership of a project with the right level of outside support that they're managing and aren't being managed by, those organizations are a lot more likely to be successful and deliver business value and minimize risk along the way. And then organizational change management is one of the best ways to maximize business value and ROI. People don't often think of organizational change as something that's a hard, tangible business benefit, but it absolutely is, um, especially if you do change right and don't just focus on the soft side of change, but the soft side of change connected to hard, tangible business benefits. And so, again, we don't want to do change management just for change management's sake. We want to make sure that we're doing change management to ensure that it's delivering business value and that we're maximizing business value in process improvements and organizational improvements that come with a successful transformation. And most organizations intuitively understand that change management is important, but most of them also think that change management equates to training and communications. And training and communications are very important parts of change management, don't get me wrong, but they're just two small portions of change management. If done right, change management also needs to focus on helping define and organize what the organization is going to look like in the future state, identifying what the impacts are to different parts of the organization, different work groups, different locations, different departments. Also focusing on executive alignment, benefits realization, all these different components of change that oftentimes get overlooked and myopically focus on communications and training. There's other dimensions that I would argue are even more important than communications and training. But most organizations and most system integrators don't focus on those things because it's not something you can touch and feel. It's not necessarily related directly to the technology itself. It's more related to how the organization is going to be impacted and what the new processes are going to look like. And so organizations tend to overlook it and not understand why that piece is so important and why a complete change management strategy and plan is so important as well. And then related to change management is user adoption. And so user adoption is part of change management. It's really technically under the change umbrella, but it's important to recognize and understand that user adoption is really important. And user adoption doesn't just happen through good training. Training will help enable user adoption, but you also want to make sure you have 
uh, a detailed user adoption plan and strategy that goes beyond training. So making sure that you have technologies and tools that allow people to not only learn the new processes and systems in a sort of a classroom or a self-study environment, but also that they have the resources as they get into a live real world environment with a new technology, new processes, making sure they have tools and resources to help them through the process uh, post implementation as well. And so an example of that is third stage has a, a, a digital adoption tool that it uses with its clients. It's a technology to agnostic tool that works across platforms um, that allows organizations to have not only training materials and training tools, but also online real-time help and support as employees are going through any sort of transaction or workflow. So that third stage digital adoption tool set is something as an example that you can use to enable some of that user adoption, really making sure you get down to that granular level of going beyond just training and making sure that organizations and that the employees are comfortable with and have the resources to support their business processes is very important as well. And then finally, you know, the biggest tip we can leave you with on, on terms of manimizing, uh, I, was, I was kind of a, a maximizing and manimizing. Manimizing, well, I just- uh, New words. <laughs> yes, it's not, it's not very politically correct or gender, gender friendly, but uh, it is a new word that we just created. Um, I'm here no, for I was it. Gonna say, <laughs> <laughs> no, a way to maximize business value is through independent program management. And this is where, especially if you don't have a really strong internal PMO capability, that independent project management, program management support is very helpful. And I think the key word here is program management. And whether you leverage outside help, uh, independent help or not, it's important to think about your project as a, as a program. And think about within that program, a technical work stream where you have hired a software vendor and or a, a system integrator implementation partner to handle that one technical work stream. But there's other technical work, other non-technical work streams as well. The change management, the data migration, the process improvements, uh, the overall strategic alignment, all these different work streams of internal and external resources that need to be managed within an overall program, which is why you don't want to just have the system integrator or the technical work stream project manager be the overall program manager because those are two different roles. And so if you don't have that, especially if you don't have that internal PMO capability, it's really important to leverage outside help on the program management side. And if you have internal PMO capabilities, that's great. That means you've got better Chances are you probably have better project uh, controls and governance in place um, it just as part of an internal mindset and process. And maybe you rely more on outside help, just more of an advisory capacity to help make sure that you are uh, leveraging that outside experience and best practices for implementations um, within that PMO framework. So having that program management uh, be effective is, is super important and a, and a great way to deliver business value. And one of the questions we have from our audience here, Eric, is around project governance for digital transformation. What requires more attention to successfully drive home goals of digital transformation? And, and maybe I'll evolve this question, but how, how do you ensure that that project governance is staying to that ownership tactic that you covered earlier in your presentation? Yeah, so, you know, the, the overall governance, um, there's a lot of complexity or, or a lot of alignment that needs to happen with program governance to ensure that it's that it fits your your business and your 
future state needs. So just to give you an example, you maybe answer the question in the form of an example of how you do it. Um, you know, a, a big part of project governance is, is how you make decisions. You know, how are we going to make decisions when we inevitably get the request to customize software or to add more technology to the mix in some way? And it's hard to make those decisions without just saying no, because we don't have the budget for it and, you know, we, we haven't planned for it. Um, or yes, because we're enticed by technology. So yeah, sure, we'll, we'll deploy new technology or we'll, we'll customize the technology. And it, it becomes kind of a subjective decision. You know, it's, it's sort of like you get to a yes, no answer based on instinct or based on um, circumstances, but it's not necessarily tied to a business case and an overall decision framework. And so the way to get to that point where you do have a more tangible business framework and a, and a way to make clearer and easier decisions is to make sure that you have, first of all, back to Sam Graham's question um, and the answer to that response, making sure that you have a business case and benefits realization plan clearly defined so that making decisions becomes easier because someone wants to customize the software. Well, let's not just be emotional about it, make, make the decision based on emotion or based on a preconceived idea that customization is bad or customization is good or whatever the case may be. Let's make it in the context of does that does that request for customization add measurable business value and does it support what we've laid out in the business case? If it helps deliver more business value and makes it more likely that we're going to achieve the ROI and the business benefits we have in our business case, then maybe it's okay to do customization on selected selective cases. If it's not, then maybe we don't do it. Then we, we say, no, it doesn't support our business case. It doesn't maximize value. It increases our risk. There's more downside than upside. So no, we're not going to customize in this one example. So, and obviously, you know, you might have hundreds of customization decisions to make in a, in a transformation. And that's just one example. You, you have other decisions to make around business processes, around integration, data migration, um, how you're going to design the organization. So all those decisions um, really need to be made in the context of that broader business case and program management sort of uh, criteria and decision parameters that you put in place up front. Absolutely. And customization makes me very emotional, which goes to um, quality assurance. And I, I think I really want you to just kind of touch on this for our capstone of this conversation, because it really truly is one of the main measurable methods to achieving your benefits realization and maximizing that business value of your new technology. Yeah. Yeah. And so this, yeah, great segue, sort of a, a add on to the previous question and answer around how do we, how do we build that program governance or that project governance within a digital transformation program? And this is the, this is the a summary of the framework we use with our clients, whether we're helping advise them behind the scenes, we're advising their PMO on how to manage the project or whether we're taking a more hands-on active role, helping support the PMO. Um, either way, this is the same framework we use. And this, by the way, is the same framework we also use in our expert witness cases. So um, Kyler mentioned that, you know, we're knee deep in a couple uh, lawsuits that we were hired and retained to be an expert witness for. And in those lawsuits, we have to analyze what went wrong. Why did the project fail? What were the root causes? What were all the things that led up to the failure? And we use that the same assessment tool in those extreme failures as we do up front before a project ever starts. So with our, with our clients where we're helping them through the transformation, we use the same framework. So it's sort of a battle-tested framework because we look at it and we use it in extreme situations like expert witness and failure-related projects, as well as when we um, are working with clients where maybe they're not at a lawsuit phase, but 
the project is troubled and it's in trouble and we'll come in and rescue the project um, and get the project back on track, this quality assurance framework is the same thing we use there too. So we've sort of downstream battle tested it um, for problem implementations, but we also use that same framework up front, more importantly and more ideally, to avoid the failures in the first place. And so when you look at this framework, you see that it covers a lot of uh, early cycle uh, types of uh, processes and, uh, and success factors, but it also addresses everything from the people, process, technology, strategy, um, data and integration, benefits realization and performance improvement. All that stuff is addressed within the framework. So it's a matter of looking at your project through these different lenses and ensuring that we uh, use this as a way to mitigate risk along the way and ensure that we have a complete plan too. That's the other part of the, the value of this framework is making sure that we have these things baked into the plan so that when we get to the different phases of the project, we can assess risk within this, this framework as well. This framework, real quick, Eric, is av available for download on our website if you'd like to see it. I did pop um, our resource page, but you can find it in our thought leadership section of the website if you want to look at this in more detail, because I know it can be hard to see all of this great content um, on a screen. Um, well, thank you, Eric, for all of this amazing insight, um, all great information, again, available on the third stage website under thought leadership and stratosphere2022.com. We will be right back after a quick break and Eric and I will kind of unpack some additional findings and I'll ask him some questions about this great content. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to third stage consulting group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back. Um, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We have new episodes every Wednesday. I'm here with Eric Kimberling, CEO and founder of Third Stage Consulting. And we just listened to his keynote around ROI and digital transformation. After that, Eric, um, I wanted to kind of dive into some specific questions with you about kind of the steps that you took us through. And the one I want to start with is your, um, your information on implementation is more important than selection and not getting stuck kind of in that analysis, analysis paralysis. What is the balance there to ensure that you have an effective software selection, but also you're not wasting time, resources, and budget on a very expensive software selection that now is, is really bleeding into the implementation and lowering the overall value of your digital transformation? 
Yeah, it, that's a great question. And and it, it's tricky. to It's hard to find that balance for sure. I mean, you, you want to be thorough. You want to get the right answer to what technology or technologies are the best fit for your organization. But you don't want to go so far that you end up burning time and money that could and should be used on making the implementation more successful. You sort of get that point of diminishing returns at some point along the way. And so to identify where that point along the way might be would be to, you know, there's ways you can speed up your evaluation without compromising quality. And there's also ways you can add more confidence to the evaluation, which will lead to a faster and better decision. And examples of that are things that um, I think I mentioned maybe in passing in the presentation would be, you know, we have a database that we use at third stage that tracks quantitative rankings of how well the software does certain things. And we've got, I think, 30 some thousand different business requirements that we track several hundred different ERP systems or enterprise-wide technologies against. So when a client tells us that their priorities or their top most important requirements are A, B, and C, we can go into the database and look at A, B, and C to see how these different technologies compare. And it it really uh, addresses a lot of the blind spots that we as humans have, myself included, any of our team members. You know, we know a lot about different ERP systems because we're technology agnostic and because we do so many software evaluations, but we don't know everything about every system out there. And so having that tool set really helps augment that human knowledge. And it also speeds up the process and it adds some objectivity and quantitative assessment of how well the software can do certain things. I think too often we want a yes, no sort of an answer when we evaluate technology. We want to know, can it do this or not? And usually it's not it's not a clear cut yes or no. It's usually, well, on a scale of one to five, this software is a 4.5 and this software is a 2.5 on addressing that that same need. Yes, they can both do it, but one of them, you know, one of them may do it a lot better. So I think that's, uh, you know, those are some ways to speed it up. And then ultimately, you know, the other thing, in addition to having inaccurate or biased data in the evaluation, the other thing that oftentimes slows down projects is just not being able to get alignment internally on what your priorities are. So, you know, you do want to take the time to do that because getting alignment on priorities will create, you know, will convert headwinds into tailwinds as you go through the, through the transformation. Absolutely. And I, I think you, you touched on all of those really important things on, on that phase zero, which is actually a new addition to this keynote, which I felt like was a, a really good way to showcase to our audience what you really need to do in that phase zero um, process and getting ready kind of for just what we talked about a data integrity and data management on the AI side. Um, so one thing I, I, we had a lot of questions around or had a lot of follow-up questions around was just the overall kind of conflicting priorities of the different parties involved in your transformation project. Why is it that software vendors and SI partners really their priority is not your ROI and how aware should you be as a project team that that's not really their job on that side? Yeah, it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, should we be upset that more software vendors aren't yeah. focused on ROI? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, probably. But I mean, I, I would argue they should be concerned about ROI. Um, but the reality is most of them aren't. That's just not top of mind for them. Their job is to sell you software and hopefully they'll see you implement it successfully. Um, it's unfortunate, but I, I think that's true. But I think the way to think about it is to think, well, this is your organization. So you're the one making significant investment in technology and the related costs associated with that. So it really is up to you or it's incumbent upon you and your team to 
identify and deliver the value. And if you focus and come at your transformation with the number one priority of, you know, containing costs, containing risk and maximizing ROI, um, that's going to lead to a lot of, a lot of different and better decisions than if you didn't have that sort of North star to guide you uh, through your transformation. Absolutely. And I think that that awareness is just key, right? And just reminding you that that doesn't have to be a negative thing, but you really have to own that piece of it. And I know you talked about the ownership of the project and the importance of that in the keynote. Um, and then just, you know, our last follow up question here, I, I want to hit on Eric, it's just the quality and program assurance roadmap that you kind of took us through. And I do want to remind our audience that I will link that below in any description. We do have it available for download on our website. And it's just a great kind of showcase visually and um, the ability to articulate that. But how important has quality program insurance become, especially as we've seen more of a diversification of systems and partners utilized? For example, you know, our, our conversation around AI software developers, best of breed um, integrations, those types of different things. It seems as though this has become a big priority in just the overall um, program assurance piece and making sure all of these pieces are working together to support that strategic goal of, you know, increasing ROI. Yeah, I think, I, I'm not sure what it is, to be honest. I mean, I do notice, though, a lot of organizations are becoming more aware of the need and the value, the need for and the value of quality assurance. Um, and that's why, you know, we've grown so much as a company, largely because those PMO and, and quality assurance sorts of services we provide throughout an implementation. Um, but I think, you know, I, I've been thinking about it a lot lately because I do notice a market shift in the last couple of years with organizations that are recognizing that value in quality assurance. And I think a lot of it is because I, I think there's a strained there's a strain or a distrust that's developing or that has developed in, in the last couple of years with, with uh, the big software vendors in particular and the big system integrators. And reason for that, I think, and this is just a hypothesis at this point, and I'd love to hear comments from the, from the audience in the comments if uh, you agree or disagree. But I think what's happening is you're seeing this level of distrust that's materializing largely because you have these software vendors that are forcing digital transformations, you know, whether the client wants it or likes it or not. And so I think that's just creating a strained relationship between the software and tech industry and their customers, because you think about like an SAP or a Microsoft going to their customer base and saying, guess what? You've got three years or four years or whatever it is to get off that system because we're going to stop supporting it. And by the way, if you want support, you're going to need to move to the cloud, which is, a, you know, they'll tell you is a, is an upgrade, but it's an entire re-implementation, very high risk, high cost and high complexity. So that is causing a lot of organizations to second guess their relationships with SIs and the software vendors. And I think it's the good news is, is opening their eyes. I think they should have, you know, I, I wish organizations would open their eyes at a, rap, a more rapid pace. But it, the good news, I suppose, if there is a silver lining is that they are opening their eyes to the need for quality assurance, the need to take ownership of the project, the need to uh, manage the blind spots of the system integrators and the software vendors and that sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, that's just such an important piece. And again, um, for all of our audio listeners, you can get that actual template available on our website. And basically, it just it buckets out all of the different um, artifacts and assets that Eric covers in the importance of that quality and program assurance. 
because um, again, you know, it's it's just a very complex process, and it's just getting more and more complex with the additional um, levels of technology and the expertise involved in that, which you've heard a lot from um, today on this episode. So please feel free to download that. If you do have any questions about it, you can feel free to reach out to our, our team directly as well. Um, and we can answer any questions around quality assurance because as Eric said, it is kind of a newer piece in the marketplace, but so important to specifically the ROI initiative. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good. It's good stuff. I appreciate uh, that. And I, I hope the audience gets some good value out of downloading that template and also, obviously, hope you got a lot of value out of this this episode in general. So um, if you did like it, I encourage you to please leave us a review, share it with your friends, and uh, any feedback you have about the show, we'd love to hear that from you as well. Uh, new episodes every Wednesday on whatever platform you're listening or watching to this episode. You can find new episodes every Wednesday, so be sure to check us out there. Um, we're going to wrap this up, but I want to thank you all for your time. Hope you all have a great week in the meantime, and we'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. on ground control that's weird sorry sorry it's weird there's like a fly flying around my head too it's like knowing that i like feel nervous about this but anyway right it's a lot of pressure i know the fly and then here's the transitions that are going to drive me crazy because it's going to go from a professional mic to my mac mic and it's not going to sound right but yeah it's just i'll i'll, I'll probably be the only one to notice it and now you'll notice it cool welcome back oh, do you want me to do the last oh, yeah one here? sorry okay i was just saying nice job <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>